What's up, everyone? We're back with That's My Take, where we talk about the Bible, church, and other relevant topics. So my name's Chris. I'm on here with my friend Kara. Yep. Hello. So uh, I, I think this is your first time being on. This is actually like one of our, my first, not my first episode, but one of my first ones. So actually, I was just thinking the other day, like, how, when did we actually first meet? Uh, a, a, a while ago. I don't remember. I f- well, wasn't it at that one concert? It might have been. Yeah. It might have been before that, but. Because it was um, when my aunt was doing the youth group, and I, I thought maybe that was the concert. But I, because I was kind of already in Ames, actually. So it was only when I was visiting. Yeah. But that was. Yeah, because then your parents, because I met your parents first at the church, and then. Yep. Yeah, because I think it was like either a, either a, a Newsboys or Sidewalk Prophets or yeah, it was some concert that we went to. Yeah, and I don't remember. Yep, no, that makes sense because I would pop in and join for those things instead of actually doing youth group because I didn't live here. I had gotten a job and had moved away. And then you came back like what a year ago or two years? A year two ago, years ago it'll be a year in July, so. Yeah, but like, because I was in Ames for almost six years, so that would put that maybe about six years ago. And you're still in school. Yeah, yeah, well, I had a break. And getting ready to finish, and then talking about going back again. Yeah, because I got to get that doctorate, so I can be doctor, you know, it's an important thing. Yeah, I couldn't do it. (laughs) I was so glad to get out of school, like, I just don't want to go back. Yeah... I question my own sanity because school sucks and I shouldn't say that because I'm going to be teaching but like it is just exhausting I'll be honest I imagine teaching is a lot different than actually taking classes though it is it's more fun because you're like taking information you already know and then you're trying to get kids interested in it and it's a very different dynamic and like grading it's stuff you already know so I'm not trying to like research or write papers i'm literally just checking a box and like yep you did that right or nope that was wrong and it seems like you actually learn a lot more when you're teaching than actually when you're going through school you do um that's one of the ways that like working as a para that i would have my students learn is i would have them teach their buddies not just have me teach them i would have them try to work together in groups because that did help or they they would just sit there and be like well i don't get it but once they were made to teach somebody, then they understood it and they could apply it. So when you're looking at education, there's a hierarchy and being able to just repeat what's told to you is the very base. Um, so a lot of lower IQ individuals, that's about where they stay. Uh, the higher the level of learning, the very tippy top is being able to do theoretical application. Um, those are typically very high level, high, high IQ individuals. Most people are kind of in the middle. So if you're having, like when you're a para and you're working with individuals that do have lower IQs or do have other things that make it more difficult for them to learn, um, being able to bump them from that very bottom base of like, I can repeat the information to the next level is a huge thing. So having them teach or work together in groups was like big because then they were applying a little bit what they were learning 
So they were climbing that scale, which was really good for them. Yeah, I think uh, I was, you know, I'd, I taught some like with like the youth group for, gosh, probably 10 years. And then I still teach with Youth for Christ. And then I've taught like uh, with EMS, I've, you know, helped teach classes and stuff. So, and I've, I've found that it's a lot easier to learn stuff when I actually have to research it myself to actually then teach it. It seems like you retain it better. But something that I don't know, I maybe I'm off based a little bit, but I think I think one of the problems too is like with the school system is there's like one format of like how they teach and not all kids learn in that same exact little box of a format. Like some kids learn better as hands on, some learn better sitting there listening and stuff. And so you put all these kids with different learning styles into one little box of you gotta learn this way. And I think that does put a little bit of a of a roadblock for some kids to be able it, to learn. It can. And so that's why like um, a lot of my education classes on like how to teach were on something called universal design um, or UDL, universal design learning. And that's where you take your hands on, your visuals, your audios, your auditory, I said audio, but auditory learners, um, people who have to like read. So that's kind of a visual, but it's in its own little category where you like read it, um, versus like diagrams. So there's, I want to say like 15 different learning styles. And when you do a UDL classroom, you're checking the box for all of them and you have it flexible to where the students are able to pick. Like if you have a final assessment, you can have three or four different versions of that assessment. That's the same number of points. It's just done in a different way. So they can show what they've learned in the way that works best for them. So that kind of, that's what's been thought up of, I guess, or um, what they're trying to implement now to try to fix that roadblock. Because, like, I learn very well traditionally. If I have somebody speak at me and I get to take my notes and I get to listen to them talking, I'm going to do great. Uh, most people don't learn that way. A lot of people are very, very they need to use their hands or they need to see pictures or diagrams. They're not able to just listen and take notes. So that's kind of a very, it's actually a very small percentage of individuals that can learn that way. So the UDL is supposed to kind of fix that, but yeah, no, that's a whole other, I could go into that and talk to you about that for hours. That's yeah, a like, whole thing. I don't uh, I like to like sit and actually listen to people talk like, at sermons or whatever. Like I could sit there and just listen to someone talk and absorb information, but I may not actually like, retain a lot of it whereas like if i can study something on my own terms and kind of take my own path to studying something i definitely retain it a lot more and i i think i've heard that some of the schools around here are like changing away from like the whole a b c d grading like what's the point of changing that so what they're doing is instead of having like your a your b your c your d it's a um they do so they're standard space grading where it, instead of letters, you use some some versions of it use like a number system. So it's like one through five. Um, one means you have to have teacher help to succeed. Five, you are above and beyond expectations. And so when you're looking at that standard space, it's actually you, you can apply it to the ABC like grading scale as well. Um, so like your A would be your five, your one would be your F. Um, it's, there's a lot of negative associated with 
the AF, A through F grading scale. Um, because like if you get an F, that means you're failing. Shame on you. Bad, bad, bad. Um, and when you slam a child with failure, you can stunt their potential to be able to learn in a different way. So, um, like for example, when you have like a special needs and I, I know more about special needs than, um, I have more hands-on is what I should say. I have more hands-on with special needs than, um, like gen ed, but like if you're working with a special needs, you have adjusted grading scales and you also have just like a pass fail. So if a student who is, um, a very low IQ or, um, has like some sort of learning disability to where they will, they, like they, they physiologically will not be able to go above. Like I had talked about that pyramid. Um, they will physiologically have a, a great difficulty getting above that base level, like to the next level of learning. So they'll just be able to kind of repeat information. And a lot of times, um, you, you can have students that, yeah, they can repeat the information, but it's only for a short period because of brain injury or something that messes to where there's something in the brain that makes it so they can't remember well. Goldfish. Think goldfish, three-second memory, um, or Dory, right? So you do have students that are like that, and so they'll never, or, I mean, they probably they could get above that base, but it would be with great difficulty. So they'll get above that, that base level. Um, and those are the ones that are typically in the pass fail, right? So if they put forth effort to show that I'm trying to learn and I'm doing my best, then that, that would be a pass. Now, if they just sit there and they shut down, that could be a potential fail. So that would be a PF. And then you have your standard space, which is the one through five. That's the most common one. Um, I know there are other grading scales and it's all about the like negative with the A through the F because A means you're doing amazing, F is you're failing. And so because of the kind of like, you know, you know how everybody gets a participation. I feel like that's how the whole number system is too. like, okay, well you can't fail because you know, you got to be included. Right. So it's like. It's to get rid of that negativity associated with a mistake or failing, which is kind of like the participation ribbon. So that's um, my understanding when I've read through like the theory of it is kind of my understanding on why they've made the other grading scales. Um, I understand like the pass fail. I think the standard space makes a lot of sense. Um I disagree with the numbers. I think we can still keep the letters, but I'm very and I and I disagree with teaching kids that you can't that failure is bad. Like, yeah. like if you fail, it's like it's like okay, well you're not you're gonna, you're gonna have low self esteem, but that's the only way you can really learn. If you fail, you find a different way to do it better, and that's why I think like homeschooling is like I mean it's not like feasible for most people nowadays, just because everyone has to work. It seems like, but and that's where I think homeschooling is like ideal because parents know their kids better than anyone else and they can they can uh kind of tailor teaching their kids to like how they learn learn best and based on their personality and what's cool is i've kind of learned i i think this a couple years ago i learned that in iowa now 
you don't actually have to report to teachers or you don't have to report to the school or anything. You can set your own standards for them passing or failing, and you can set your own curriculum and everything. And then you don't have to report anything to anyone. And then you just have to make sure that there's a standard that they have to reach in order to pass. And then you can have like your own graduation and stuff. And, and then schools actually recognize it, which is nice because um, you can kind of set things based on how the kid actually needs it. And Yeah, you do. It is still required to do standard testing so that, yeah, parents can set their own because we would have... Um, I, I should explain that. So standard testing is your ISAPs and you can have kids who are homeschooled who do have like their parents grading scale and stuff like that, but they still have to take that standard test. That is a federal regulation. From what I read in the, in the new code says that they don't have to, that, 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 that the only way you have to do that is if your kid wants to do enroll for sports or something like that, then they have to be subjected to the testing. They have to be subjected to um, reporting to the school and stuff like that year annually. But, uh, but yeah, from what I read, like the school has zero, like the school system has zero involved. Like if you go, cause I think there's like five, four or five different routes you can take for uh, homeschooling. And if you take the route where the parent is completely independent of everything, like you don't have to have anything to do with the whole school system. You can just set your own standards and everything. Oh, that's actually pretty cool. I didn't and, know and I that. guess you don't even have to write a letter or anything to the school. You could just do it. But that, like, from our experience, because I was homeschooled until sixth grade, that, and then we went to private school. And I, my entire time through private school, I think most of, most of a public school, my dad kept getting notices saying that we weren't showing up to school and stuff, and he just could not get it through their heads that we weren't going to that school. And so, right, I think writing a letter definitely would help too. Like, even though you don't have to, like, it's like, hey our kids aren't going to this school and you don't need to keep them on your roster, but yeah, which I school systems are, I mean, yes, I'm going into education. Do I completely agree with how school systems are run? No, there's a lot of faults within the system and it, well, ult ultimately the school system was started by a socialist and a Marxist. And so the American school system, I should say. So, and that's, not inaccurate that's fairly accurate um the socialist was the one that they actually decided to allow to go into law there was a few other individuals that were on the other side who still wanted public learning but they also wanted to involve women in school and we could not have that women were not their brains just didn't work well enough to learn you know so that that's why that guy didn't get his school plan um to pass into law but anyway that's a whole other thing on history and women's rights which i could go into as well um well and like i think uh like john dewey was a big founder in education i think there's been a couple others but they all have their basis back into marxism and marx's idea was as soon as the kid's old enough to be weaned from the parents then the state should have full control of raising the kids so the state could raise them however they see fit which we actually see now in the school system if we you know um with the whole trans thing, kids can come in, say they're trans, and the school can affirm everything, but have to, don't have to say anything to the parents about it. And it's, it seems like in a general sense throughout the country that uh, the school is trying to slowly kind of pick away the parents' rights from the kids from having um, parental rights over the kids to some degree. It, I think that depends on the school at this point. Um, I don't think that's... Oops, I was, like, blocking my face. I don't think that's a um, 
super common thing. Yeah, you see it in the news and that's reported quite a bit, but those are very specific instances. If I remember right, like I can tell you that like teachers have almost zero rights on kids. So that's a whole other thing. <laughs> Keep talking. Okay. Um, so like when you look at schools and the control that they have over the kids and what the kids are learning, um, honestly, the parents, at, at least the, the school I was working at, um, if the parent disagrees, they can completely change an entire curriculum. So like there was a summative, um, and a parent decided that the instant or the, the situation that was discussed within the summative, which was a, a part of the time. So it was a, his, a history class, right? And um, this child's mom found the brutality of that time period to be difficult or, or something like that. So there was a thing where like the parent thought something was too harsh or too scary or, or something like that. And it was uncomfortable. And then the, the teach like that, that's no longer allowed to be used in the school system because one person, one parent decided it was too extreme. So it, schools, Yes, they have taken a lot of responsibility on raising kids. Some of that is also the demographic that we're serving. So when you look at the change of culture in, in the overall country, a lot of parents want to take some of the, the basic things like sex ed or, um, well, that's kind of a big one is the sex ed one, but like, Things that typically would have been way, way, way old school would have been handled in the home and schools did not touch. Schools now teach it. Um, but anytime a parent goes, hey, we need this to be accepted or we need this to be changed, a lot of times the school will go back and try to make that change or try to... Um, do whatever they need to do to make that parent happy because you have to avoid everybody's too happy. So you have to avoid any lawsuits. So anything that could be seen as offensive or not offensive, you, you just have to be really careful. And that's not so much the schools and that falls a lot on the demographic we're serving and the eggshells. Honestly, a lot of schools are on with trying to please all the different parents and it's a very yeah. Unfortunately, we're in kind of just a weird society where that's just kind it's of a very, the way very it is. System. But like, I I tend to take things back to like just the roots of like what things were originally intended to be. And like, according to the Bible, like it's the parents' responsibility to raise the kids to make sure that they're educated, to make sure that they're taught what's right. And we see that like throughout like Leviticus and Exodus and Deuteronomy and stuff, where where God charges like the parents to be the ones to like be the ones responsible for making sure the kids are raised right and stuff. And so 
And so when you take something like sex ed and then you give it over to a very liberal institution that's going to teach your kid something, you know, completely contradictory to what the Bible is, then there is some irresponsibility on the parent side. To, I think it doesn't just happen just with the school system, too. I think parents tend to do that with their kids as like uh, spiritual growth, too. They tend to um, pawn it off to youth groups in the church and, and assume that, you know, they're going to allow the, you know, the church and the youth groups to raise their kids and uh, teach them how, like the Bible, teach them how to grow as Christians and not really take the responsibility of it. So I think it's kind of in every facet of parenting. And I, I would agree with that too. It is in every chunk of parenting, especially like the youth group thing, like you said. So I I know a lot of kids that like their bus, they're, they're just bus kids. They ride the bus to church and they ride the bus to youth group and their parents don't go to church. Their parents are not religious. Um, the kids would ask me about God or what I thought about church or if I went to church or if I would go to church with them um, because they that was a place that they could go that they felt safe because their homes weren't as safe as they probably should have been. So when you look at the – there's just a lot of irresponsibility, and I think a lot of that falls into the fallen world, right? So a lot of – Religion is almost a taboo thing. Like you don't talk about religion. You don't act on religion. You don't everything. It's, it's a separate entity. So church and state, when we say church and state are separate, we mean that very literally church and state are separate. You do not discuss church when you are doing anything with state. Church is like your private behind Which is closed completely doors. Like antithetical to what it was originally designed. Cause actually when they wrote the constitution, even though, not all the founding fathers were Christians. They all had an understanding that you know the Bible is the best base to govern society on, and so even like when you had the Constitution, Declaration of Independence, and really like our whole like governmental system set up, it was very much set up around a very biblical model. Yep, and it wasn't until later that they changed that. Yeah, and they didn't understand that separation of church and state means that the state can't interfere with the with what the church is doing because that's what the Church of England was doing. Because when that was written, and when America was like under like English rule, you had the Church of England, which was pretty much it was like the church of like of the country that where the government or the king or whoever they told them, yeah, this is what you can teach, this is what you can't teach, this is what you can believe, you can't believe this, and the government had full say over what the church can and can't teach or you know believe, and so that's was the whole point of the whole separation of church and state. Then when the Constitution was started, because um, they didn't want the government meddling in what you know what the religious institutions could teach and believe. Right. But schools very early on, schools initially had religion involved. It wasn't until yeah, I have the original school book actually in my the very first American school book in my bookcase. That's pretty cool. And the whole thing is completely like biblical based. Like teaching the alphabet, they use biblical words and then or words and then they associate those words into the into verses. Like the entire book you could teach like the Bible out of. And that was the original first school book that our country had. Yep. And that that's very true. It's real, like this country originally, the entire school system, the federal school system. Um, and I say federal, but it was actually state that, that designed it. But it was like the country overall. It's just all the states did their own. Um, that was very, very religious based. It wasn't until later and i don't remember what i used to know the year 
back when, like a year ago, I knew the year. Um, but it, it was several decades. It, it was like decades after the school system had initially been started, um, that they moved away from religion in schools at all. So I don't, that's a whole thing too. Yeah. <laughs> so when it comes to learning, are you more of a, like a reader or a thinker or? Um, probably more reader, like between those two choices. Um, I like to, like when I'm learning, I like to listen. I like to be able to take notes. I'm not the best note taker. I'm better now than what I was as a kid. But if I can listen and I can read about it, a lot of times I'm able to pick up on it. Um, certain things like making a vaccine in order for me to be able to do that well, I had to, I, I could read as much as I wanted on how to make the vaccine, actually making the vaccine or actually testing the vaccine. I needed to do that hands on. So it kind of depends on like, if I'm learning a theory, I can read it or listen to it. If it's something that's a very practical thing where you have to physically do something, I have to do it. So it, yeah, I kind of float. I'm, I'm very much a thinker. Like I could read like two sentences and then I can formulate like an entire like thing around it just by just analyzing the crap out of it and just overthinking. That's why when I do things like podcasts, I have to like write things out because my brain will run a hundred miles an hour, but my mouth can't keep up and it just comes out a jumbled mess. And so I just, I tend to think a lot and I, which usually ends up coming up to be really random stuff too. Yeah. But like one, one question that I've, that had come up to me and, I don't, I don't even know where the question even came from, but like the question is like, if you could, if you could, uh, like if you weren't a Christian and knew nothing about Christianity, what religion would you tend to gravitate towards? I don't know. I mean, I did Wiccan for a while, <laughs> but, um, yeah, probably like Wiccan. Like even now? Well, I, if there was no Christianity and that wasn't an option, or you didn't know anything about it. Or I didn't know anything about it. So Catholicism, or is that still falling under Christianity? Because that's kind of I a... wouldn't say so. Like Catholicism has so many beliefs that are antithetical to the Bible that I, I wouldn't put them in a category of being Christian. So I would maybe go that route because Catholicism is the other one that I know. Well, I know like three. I know Christianity, Catholic, and Wiccan. There we go. Yeah, but if, I, if, it, if I was in high school, it would be somewhere probably around witchcraft or Wicca. Nowadays, it would probably either, I know it would be a toss up between probably like Nordic paganism or Zen Buddhism. One of the two. That would be interesting. I tend to leave, like the whole, uh, like uh, the calming side of like Zen Buddhism and the whole like meditation side and like everything kind of goes around that. I, I kind of find fascinating. But I'm also like huge into like Viking history and stuff. And so like the whole Nordic paganism, like when you start like actually know like everything behind like what they believe and stuff, I think is like, I tend to gravitate towards that too. Especially since like, that's a very masculine religion. Yeah. Like it completely revolves around. And I think like it's kind of similar to Islam kind of is too, but it, it much revolves around like war and like fighting. And, and like, if you're going to be like in Valhalla drinking and partying with the gods, like you die you die like victoriously in battle and stuff. And so I, I I'd tend to, you know, go towards that probably like nowadays if I didn't know anything about Christianity, but 
but he had mentioned Wicca. Like I actually, when I was in high school, kind of a little bit, little bit of background, I, I kind of got, I, I didn't really get into Wicca much. I like got into a little bit of like studying it a little bit, but not really in depthly. I got a lot more into like witchcraft type stuff and like dark, more darker stuff. But like, I think for me, it started when I was in maybe early high school. I was at the library. I don't even know like how I came across it, but I came across a book on like divination and I became like heavily fascinated by it. And so then I started reading it and started getting like into like uh, uh, different things like palm reading, the I Ching. And I really kind of gravitated towards like runes and tarot cards and stuff. And then I got big into that. And then it eventually I kind of merged into getting into like seance type stuff and getting into like spells and curses and stuff. And then kind of got into like full-blown like witchcraft and trying to summon up demons and communicate with demons and stuff and so that's kind of like i got big into that for a while and um eventually i eventually i had some experiences that eventually led to me stopping but so um what's your background i mean i did more wiccan than witchcraft uh i mean i dabbled obviously but i yeah obviously i dabbled no um so and that would have been in Oh, I don't know when in high school, um, but I was the the individuals that I hung out with were the awkward goth kids, and um, the awkward goth kids knew a guy that went to the Church of Satan, and so instead of going full blown Church of Satan, they kind of stepped back and did Wiccan, um, because Church of Satan was just that was too far, too far. So we'll do Wiccan because that's not as bad, but still dark and goth like, right? Um, and so I kind of honestly peer pressure and I just followed my friends, um, and got into the Wiccan thing. Cause yeah, the Satan guy was, uh, he was an odd duck, you know, as, as they are. tend to be. I think the church of Satan too, people don't, Christians that don't know what the church of Satan is, have a completely different view of what it actually is. Mm-hmm. That that's also very true. And like, which I only know teeny tiny bit on church of Satan. Yeah, I don't know a whole lot, but I know it's like, I know from a Christian standpoint, like growing up, the idea was that the church of Satan, like their whole thing is they go out and kidnap kids and sacrifice them to demons and wear goat heads on their heads and things like, and that's not exact. I mean, I think there has been like nuanced cases of that, but I don't, that's generally not what the church of Satan is. No. And if there's any associations with the church of Satan, it wouldn't be the recognized like religion, Church of Satan, it would be because there's a difference between a cult and a recognized religion. So, like Church of Satan, I believe is recognized. Um, Wiccan is recognized, but you also have your cult Wiccans. So that's a whole. Well, and then you get when you get the cults too. That's a whole nother anything really. When you break it down to the definition of a cult, anything outside of Christianity really is for the most part a cult, because a cult really is a religion that revolves around you know having a uh, a certain like. I guess, physical leader that you follow and you have to bend to their every whim. And generally, a cult is just some form of uh, distorting the Bible and using that to develop your religion. Yep, which, I mean, I <laughs> I was actually co-workers with somebody who her dad was the leader of a cult. So she had so many stories about being the daughter of a cult leader. Um, or her grandpa. I, I don't It was either her dad or her grandpa. She still has the jacket, the cult jacket. And you go down to the south where the cult is and they have monuments of her i think i want to say it's her dad of her dad and so it's yeah it's insane how cults are 
but so then you um, got into wicca oh. yeah sorry side note um so yeah i got into wicca and um read up on it and did like some of the rituals which were focused around primarily you get your energy from like the moon goddess so a lot of the rituals that i did were focused on on the moon goddess because she she's the one that brought energy the earth god was the one that um or i guess i should say she was the one that had power and the earth god was the one that provided like um stability i i I think it's a good way of saying it. So he was the one that you would ground yourself to not so much to get like power or, or energy or even guidance more than just like someone to calm you or center you. So, cause there's a, a process of centering your chakras that I, I did often to, so I would center my chakras to the earth God. So I could be, focused and stable and be able to move on to the next thing um similar to the meditation uh, that that i was gonna say it sounds a lot like a pantheistic (laughs) new age type yeah religion yeah and it um and that was a part of that wiccan like the book of wiccan or something i don't even remember what it was called (laughs) but like the recognized wiccan religion that was a chunk of it or a part of it um that i had read which maybe that wasn't accurate either. You know, I don't know. Um, but not all Wiccans necessarily all agree or believe the same thing either. They don't. So, and that's kind of where you go into the recognized religion versus the cults. So there's like an organization of world leaders, um, not world leaders, I should say religious leaders that decide whether or not a, um, religion is legitimate or if it's simply a cult, um, so I know the, the Pope was the deciding vote for Wiccan, whether Wiccan would or would not, I, I believe it was the Pope, if I remember, if I'm remembering years ago, um, to decide that like the Wiccan religion, like the official Wiccan religion followed the specific rules that were in that book that I had read, um, And so that had a lot of those rituals. And I mean, I did some things like tarot and stuff like that, but that wasn't, that was like extra. That wasn't specifically with people think some people think that witchcraft and Wicca are like synonymous, but Mm -hmm. they're not. No, they're not. They can go hand in hand, but they're not synonymous with each other. Right. I mean, you have a lot of rituals and like I would do a lot of cleansing salt circles. So I would do a pentagram um, on the ground with, with like, sounds so bad when i say it out loud a pentagram of salt and then you light some candles and you cleanse um that's like a cleansing thing you have a chant you do it's in latin i don't remember it um and that was like a cleansing circle and then you have your your grounding techniques you have your um prayers to the the moon goddess um because a lot of of the wiccan religion is focused on the earth the moon and nature so a lot of the, the worship was the earth, the moon, and then the surrounding nature and the different deities that could be associated with nature. So you have like a tree deity, you have a water deity, uh, all, all of these, uh, it's very paganistic, I guess. Yeah, and I think really anything you get outside of Christianity is paganistic, which we see very much in the Bible. Like, in fact, when like, so like when you read like Exodus and like Israel was like freed from slavery in egypt 
God was very strict on do not associate with these people, don't intermarry into these people, you know, and he had he set down very strict guidelines for this is how you worship, this is how we do things, because they grew up in a pagan, you know, for hundreds of years grew up in a pagan country of, you know, living through Egypt. So and God's very I think very strict on that too. Um but I think when it comes to like stuff like that, Christians I think a lot of Christians don't have a I would say either an accurate view or even have much of an opinion on like uh, the supernatural and like, you know, like things like demonology and angels and stuff. I think a lot of Christians either don't know how to talk about it, don't have an opinion, or I think, so like I grew up Baptist and one of like the beliefs is that if you talk about demons or you talk about uh, exorcisms or possessions at all, then you're setting yourself up for a demon's going to come in and start like wrecking havoc in your life. And I don't think that's necessarily the case, but there's like that fear of like talking about the supernatural. But I think I think there's a lot of uh, uh, misbeliefs about a lot of that stuff in Christianity. Like, what do no, you? No, I would agree with that. I was also raised Baptist, um, so a lot of that same foundation that you were talking about, like you talk about demons or Satan or whatever, they're going to follow you, attach whatever. Um, so that is a huge misconception. Um, honestly, that's probably why I was so attached to Wiccan because that was so opposite. Um, but you know, gotta rebel. Um, even like today though, in non-denominational churches, I I've noticed that back when, like where I used to live, um, and, and here too, just talking to individuals, um, they tend to think that the supernatural acts in a very, specific way and I, I I would say that that probably isn't accurate like for example like ghosts or um, demons and like how you invite them in and like I, I just think there's a lot of confusion on what's true and what's myth and, yeah, and I tried just, having a conversation with someone um, not too long ago and they just trying to have that kind of conversation with them like they didn't really want to have that conversation like either like either that is just one of those topics it's like well we just stay away from that or didn't have an opinion on it or i'm not sure what but but yeah i think uh but you know i don't see anything biblically in the bible that says that you know if you talk about you know supernatural stuff then you're gonna have a demon following you around in fact everything we read about spiritual warfare in the bible it talks about like, you know, like the armor of God, and it talks about how we don't fight against, you know, flesh and blood, but against principalities and dark powers. Everything we it mentions about, like, the demons, and it talks about, like, the supernatural, it talks about spiritual warfare. And a part of warfare is understanding your enemy so that you know how they act or how they work and how they, you know, come against you. And so if you don't talk about, like, the way, like, demons work and how the supernatural works, um, you're kind of setting yourself up to not understand, like, how Satan works. And then you don't know how to actually fight against Satan when he does come after you. And because I think Satan, Satan doesn't care like whether you worship him or not. Like he just doesn't want you to worship God and he'll find that. I think that's why there is such a, uh, why so many people have the image of Satan being this little guy in a red jumpsuit carrying on a pitchfork because it's kind of like an innocent cartoony character. And if Satan can put off himself as being that kind of a character, you won't be able to recognize when he's act when he's actually doing things mm-hmm. in your life, and so then you don't know how to actually fight against him. So if you don't understand and study how how like demons operate and work and how Satan works, 
uh, you're not going to know how to actually fight against him, you know, in spiritual warfare. And so, like you had mentioned something about like ghosts and demons. I think that's another uh, thing that people very much have. Uh, that, that's a very mainstream um, belief that ghosts and demons are two separate entities. And when you read the Bible, you don't really you don't see any evidence of like a ghost being a disembodied spirit from someone who died and hasn't crossed over. Like you just don't see biblical evidence for that. I don't I don't know like where the idea came from. It sounds very much like a purgatory thing. Mm-hmm. Like in purgatory, you're not really in heaven or hell, but you're not you're just kind of somewhere in limbo. And uh, that kind of sounds like it'd be a good base for like coming up with that idea that people are like stuck like somewhere in between, and that's where ghosts come from. But you don't see that like anywhere in the Bible. So in the Bible, you see a lot of uh, in uh, in the New Testament, you read about like where Jesus talks about uh, like the rich man and Lazarus, and it says when he uh, says like you had like a rich man and Lazarus was a poor man, and like when they died, uh, the rich man went to hell, or you know the Bible called it uh, Hades, which was like the Greek word for hell, and then the rich man went to like a place called paradise. And what's interesting is they could see each other. Like it's like it was one place, but there was like it said there was like a gulf between them. So like they couldn't get to each other, but they could see each other. And what's interesting too is so Jesus told told a lot of parables of things that weren't like true stories, but they were like to uh, as like an analogy for something. But when he told parables, he always said a man or a woman or something. And this he actually gives names, which would actually you know imply that maybe this was actually an actual story Jesus Jesus was telling about someone. And so but when they died, it says as soon as they died, the rich man went to hell and the uh, Lazarus went to a place like paradise. And it doesn't say anything about them being out in like limbo or whatever. It talks about them going to a very specific place. And it doesn't – and so when you die, you actually go to one of two places. And you don't like sit around like in a spirit world like running around and causing shenanigans or being stuck into a house, haunting a house or something. And you just don't see that anywhere in the Bible. And there is a verse in, I think it's 2 Corinthians. Uh, yeah, 2 Corinthians 5 8 that says, like, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so when you die, you don't, like, just haunt something or you don't, and um, you don't, like, sit around as, like, a spirit haunt, like, uh, as we think, as a lot of people think of as ghosts. And so I think, so when people are doing, like, the ghost hunting stuff, they have the idea that a ghost is like a uh, disembodied spirit that's kind of either playful or maybe just whatever the personality of the person was. But if they do something very malicious, then it's a demon, and that's how you tell the difference. But there's like no biblical like basis or no – really actually there's really no foundation at all that they have for that other than coming up with that idea on their own. And so um, – but something to think about is demons have been around. like So demons actually were fallen angels. So when you read through like the Bible, it talks about how – uh, Satan rebelled against God, and so God threw him out of the garden, and so he took the third of the angels with them, which then became like the demons that are like what we know as demons now. And so uh, when that – because – and that was somewhere like early on, like at the very beginning of Genesis. And so demons have been around for all of humanity, and so they understand how humans work, how humans think. And um, so when you have like – when people are going out ghost hunting and stuff – Demons know very much how to um, portray themselves as people. And so uh, – and that that's another thing too. People tend to think that demons are a – like an impersonal, just malicious, evil force. 
with no intelligence and no uh, ability to think for themselves and come up with plans and and uh, conspire between themselves. But we see that a lot in the Bible, where uh, and actually, um, I know a lot of Christians don't put a whole lot of weight to the Book of Enoch. But when you read through the Book of Enoch and you read about where it talks about like, the demons um, conspiring and stuff, they're having conversations just like we as people have conversations. They come up with plans of like, hey, let's let's get together. Let's you guys go do this, you do this, and we're gonna conspire and we're gonna like destroy humanity by doing this. And they come up with a plan and then they go out and do it. And so. When uh, if if you ha- don't have a full understanding of what of how demons actually work to like pull people away from God, then you're not going to understand like how to how to see that when they when they do do it. And so if they make you think, okay, well a demon is some malicious character that when you go into a house they're going to scratch you or whatever. Well, that's a demon, but a demon's not this little yeah. friendly ghost no, that's and that, moving that's a chair where a lot of the the confusion is. And like, okay, so if I because Nephilim are fallen angels, right? So the Nephilim actually, and we'll get into this more when I go into a series on the giants, but where uh, you're referring to is in Genesis, right before the talking about the flood, it talks about the Nephilim. And it says the sons of God, which was also another word for like the fallen angels. When you, when you read in the book of Enoch, it very much is very explicitly talks about how these demons decided to conspire together to go down to sleep with women. And so then you had then when they gave birth, those were the Nephilim. So they're essentially almost like, I guess you could say like a demigod where they're like half human, half demon. Yeah. And then they, those are the ones that were like, became like giants and these people who were like are men of well-renowned, which is probably where a lot of like, um, uh, like mythology, like, like different legends and mythologies probably came from, might've been from that. But yeah, so the Nephilim were the like the offspring. Oh, okay, of so because I know when Satan fell, there he he wasn't the only angel that fell. There there no, were no, several no, angels. No, that no he fell. was like kind of like the ring. Like, and we don't really we don't really read about like what how the other angels um, responded. It just talks about how Satan decided that he was going to try to raise himself up to be like God and thought he can be God, mm-hmm. and because of that, God threw him out. And it said that a third of the angels left with him. Right, and so those essentially those fallen angels are kind of, I mean, they serve with Satan. Right. And so, um, like ghosts and stuff that we see, um, because you're right, like purgatory and that sort of thing. I mean, the only thing in the Bible that, um, could even potentially, maybe if you stretch it, you might be able to say that when you're facing judgment, you could call that maybe a purgatory because that's before right before you are placed and that is when you are being judged by god um and i unfortunately can't tell you a passage but i i feel like that's in the bible somewhere um and and but that's not even like a purgatory that's literally you facing judgment um and catholics um i think where purgatory was like actually stated I know Catholicism was one of the ones that made that very, very popular. So that could be where ghosts maybe came from. But I think a lot of the like things that we see, the supernatural things that you see are, are typically demonic Um, and spiritual warfare. That's a whole thing because like you don't realize how (laughs) in your face demons and spiritual warfare is like on a daily basis. Have you ever um, read uh, 
C.S. Lewis's the screw tape letters? Nope, because that's, I have, um, because there is a point, uh, the Bible says you do need to be aware of what you read about the occult um, because you can become fascinated. Yeah. Um, and what the screw tape letters is, is essentially it's a fictional mm-hmm. like set of letters of a demon writing letters to his nephew demon. And what the whole point of it is, is to, is to kind of waken up people to see that how demons work in your life in a way that you don't that you wouldn't expect to see right. and it's so like he's uh uh and i, I think a, a a good um segue that comes out of that too is that i think that there are demons and i don't really have a whole lot of proof for this but that i think we everyone has like a demon or a certain amount of demons that actually that are like assigned to us to actually drag us down and try to oppress us and stuff because it does talk, Bible does talk about how we have angels. I think the idea of a guardian angel, um, how most people think of it, I don't think it's necessarily accurate. But the Bible does say that we have angels watching over us, and that we each have like an angel or so many angels that watch over us. And I and when we uh, see it through the Bible about spiritual warfare and how like the angels are like in constant warfare with demons constantly, I do think we have you know where because Satan. If you think about it, Satan is not uh, omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at once. So he assigns like demons to, you know, to go to each people and to cuz his goal is to even even for Christians, like he we don't he doesn't need us to worship him. He just needs us to either doubt God or to think something wrong about God or to question God's authority or even just to become distracted so we're not effective for God. But either way, I think that I think it's very much possible that uh that there are demons like assigned to us for that purpose of working in our lives. And so like with screw tape letters, that's kind of what happens is like, there's this like young demon who's uh, assigned to this one person and this person like either starts turning to God. So then, you know, the, then like the, the uncle's like, okay, well you need to like merge this into his life. So he starts to kind of forget about this or he, or he starts leaning more towards spending more time at work and less with family and stuff. And pretty much it's like how like the demons orchestrate their way into, uh, organizing things in our lives that will yeah, or, pull us or away tempt from God. us or things right. like that. I don't I don't know if I agree about like individual demons. I do think demons do work as units to try to bring down the people of God. Um and I just with personal experiences with spiritual warfare, I think that's a very cuz you even meet Christians that don't think that's true. That spirit they don't think spiritual warfare is a real thing where you are right. dealing with those supernatural forces, your soup, like your, your spiritual warfare is within yourself and you, you do have stuff within yourself because yeah, of, of the, the brokenness of humanity, is, yeah. right? The, the fall of humanity. So you do have that as well. So honestly, when God talks about the, the few and far between entering his gates, that's an extremely accurate mm-hmm. statement because not only are you battling yourself, but you're also battling those forces outside of you. So in order for God to to really take a hold of your soul, there, that will be a very small population because the odds are literally against every Christian out there. Um, for us to be able to find the sovereignty, truly believe the sovereignty, and, and successfully follow the sovereignty of God, right? Um, but there, just the fact that people who can be decades... And in, in, into like 
biblical study and very knowledgeable and they don't think that you can physically encounter a demon just blows my mind and like because I've talked to people about like um so the Wiccan thing I've done spells I've done witchcraft um tarot um not specifically trying to summon a demon but I did try to gain energy from another source so I could do a spell um and that's when, when you do things like that that very much opens up your heart to those types of presences um and so like I've encountered a demon that I was able to see um and choke like it choked me and touched me you know and it was a very scary thing and when I've talked to um church leaders at not the church I'm at now um they told me that that was just a nightmare like well the bruises said otherwise but okay you know because it left physical marks so i don't know that right. that's probably right. when not I was the most involved with witchcraft, that's one of the things that kind of got me like turned off from a lot of it is like i would see like figures or faces in my room at night or uh so at the girlfriend i had at the time like we were both kind of in it together and she would wake up with like dark figures standing over her and waking up with like cuts all over her in the morning and things like that too so yeah, and it, it it's astounding how you can sit there, you can present this evidence, and you're like, no, this is a thing that actually happened, and we need to be aware of it, and people are just like, nah. Yeah, and I mean, we see it throughout the Bible, like um, Mark 9, Mark 5, Matthew 8, along with, like, I, I, I couldn't even write down all the verses, like, through the whole New Testament, there was just verse after verse of, like, demon possession and times when people are encountering a demon and stuff, and that's, and I think some of those verses, like, between those and like just logically thinking why I think that it's possible that we could have like certain demons assigned to us because when there's a demon possession, there's that one particular demon and that stays with that person for their life. And, and it can be passed on generation to generation too. And that, and I think that's where like mediums as well kind of comes in because people think that they can, because they think that spirit, like pe dead people can are kind of like in limbo that mediums can then talk to, you know, dead people. But I think, you know, I, I don't think that's necessary. Well, my opinion's changing a little bit, and I don't know really where to stand on that, but I do very much think that demons can per or personify themselves as being a person. And, you know, if you have a demon that's following you generation for generation, if you want to contact great-grandpa, that demon knows everything there is to know about that person because they've been following him, and, you know, and they can very much personify themselves to a medium that way. And so I, and I think... Um, there's a lot of verses in the Bible that back that uh, back up, you know, how demons can come in a form of like a person because we see that with angels too. Like angels came every time an angel encountered a person. It wasn't like what you like. Well, all these TikTokers are like putting out and stuff, saying like showing. Well, this is a biblical angel and it's an eye with all these orbits around it. It's like that's taken out of uh, context, out of Revelation. But um, every time a, a person encountered an angel they came in the form of a person but they were kind of more like of a glorified type person and i think they were very much like difficult to look at because of the majesty of them because like every time they came they uh the angels always had to say you know don't be afraid but uh like when uh, angels came to uh, elizabeth and uh, her name his name escapes me now but john the baptist's parents they came to an angel came to them and told them that she was going to give birth an angel came to uh, uh mary and joseph to tell them that they're going to give birth to jesus and they came in the form of you know like a person and like when uh angels came to abraham to, um 
you know, it was in the form of like a person. Then, then when Lot was supposed to leave Sodom and Gomorrah, two angels came in the form of a person. So I, I do think, uh, and you know, when you think about the fact that demons were originally angels, I don't think demons are outside of the realm of being able to personify themselves as looking like and you know having right. the. And I, you know, shape I think of that's a very accurate as well because I, if I remember right, I. F- I feel like the Bible even mentioned that they were able to present themselves in a different way than their true forms. But I, I could be wrong. I'm, I'm still learning the Bible. So that, that's yeah. not yeah, my area of expertise. Angels and demons, they're within a spiritual realm. They're spiritual beings like we are, but we also have a physical body, but they can very much manifest themselves in a way that is physical. So they, yeah, they can take a form that's not their original form So right. because you also – and I don't think you really see much of this in the Bible, but um, – and I, I guess you have to kind of take with a grain of salt when you listen to people's near-death experiences. I don't really take a whole lot of that into account. There's a couple of them I've heard where I think they're very much believable. But every time, like when they would – like people who experience hell, they, they have like these hellish-looking creatures. And I do think that demons do can take the form of that too because people do see that. Um, my dad did a um, – he was a part of like a demonology class at his church, which was kind of odd because it was a Baptist church. For the, so for them to do that, it was kind of odd, out of character for that type of church. But they would go and do exorcisms and stuff and different from like what a Catholic exorcism is. It's a lot different. But uh, then he he would tell stories from, uh, you know, some of these people who had encountered demons and how like a lady was oppressed by a demon. And finally she woke up one day and looked over and it was one laying right next to her. And she described it as this hellish creature that she could, just couldn't describe. So I think they can take... Um, form of like this um, this scary looking creature but they can also take form of like a person too and what's really interesting too is like a lot of like what I hear people's experiences in hell is like demons are like ones that are tormenting people in hell but they're also ones that are tormented mm-hmm. so because originally hell was designed for Satan and for his demons for when they fell and then event then after the after when a uh, humanity fell then that's when then hell that's when like people were then you're going to hell as well and so but um i i see a lot of where people will talk about how like demons are like ones who are a part of tormenting people in hell but at the same time like they're also in pain and agony and stuff and like when you have like not really i wouldn't say mediums but people who actually are able to like talk to demons and because i i have heard some recordings that were pretty creepy you yeah. know kind of unnerving yeah. and like every time the demons have would that would that they were communicating with would talk about how they're in pain and agony and torture all the time as well so i think it's so i do think they can take the form of like something horrendous you know in the way of like uh torturing people and like horrifying people but at the same time they can take the form of a per of like yeah looking like and a i well. i know that the bible does this part i know i've read genesis like four times humans are the only creatures that were made in God's image, right? So, like, angels, including demons, because those are fallen angels, right? Um, they do not look like us. Like, their their basic or, or original form doesn't look like us. So, I... And, and, and each individual angel, I believe, was created individually. Like, we were created as, like, Adam and Eve, and then we were all, like, ancest- like ancestors of that. So, we're all, like, one type of being. But angels, I think, were created individually because the way I understand it is in order for, like, the demons to have actually been – for Jesus to actually, like, have some weight for them to be saved as well, 
he would have had to die individually for each one of them because when he died for mankind, we all have one common ancestor, whereas the demons didn't. They were all created all at one time, and so they were all each in their own individual uh, yeah. person, whereas like we are all an ancestor of one yep. person. So in that, that that's actually kind of neat now that that's really settling in the brain. Sorry. Um, no, and so the like the forms angels and, and demons take, that's that's where like I would want to read more into it because like that yeah. I know like the one I saw was humanoid, but it had red eyes and it it was all black. Um but it was it generally humanoid, a spiky head, didn't have like hair that I could see other than the only thing I could see were the red eyes and the teeth, but it had black teeth. Um and um uh, yeah, it was one of those you will never escape things. It's it, it had said something like that. Um because that was when I was that I had just gotten saved when I saw that. So, um, like you said, with demons potentially attaching to a person, I think they can. I don't know if that's every single person has their own assigned, um, or if there's like this person's more susceptible. So you follow this person and then while work on this group over here, you know, I, I do think they plan like that. And I think that particular one, um, didn't want me to get saved um, because I was well on my way to not believing in God and being completely away from the church. And then I just had, had a change yeah, of and, heart. And that's ultimately Satan's plan because, I mean, if we know things out of the Bible, Satan obviously knows them as well. Mm -hmm. And he probably knows even more than we do. And he knows that in the end, he's going to be you know sentenced to spend the rest of eternity in the lake of fire and that that that's going to be his eternity. And so his goal is to bring as many people with him as he can. And so that's really, that's one of his missions is really to bring as many people to not come to Christ as possible. And that doesn't have to be in the form, like I said, of worshiping him. It can be in the form of worshiping yourself and like just busyness. Right. And I think that's, I think that's one of Satan's biggest tactics, like especially nowadays is busyness. Like if, if he can distract us from, from being in church, being like in the word, and uh, spending time with God will slowly start to drift away from God. And even as Christians, I don't believe you can lose your salvation, but you can lose your effectiveness for reaching other people if you're if you're distracted enough from the God's word that uh, you don't have time to you know to go out and witness to yeah, other people. Yeah, and I I think being busy and now we have we are a very narcissistic. This country anyway is extremely narcissistic. Um, with Snapchat, like social media and that sort of thing. So we are very self-focused and very less so focused on our, our neighbors, like our, our fellow man, really. And um, even religion, trying to be focused on religion is difficult when you're so focused on, is my hair good today? Are my lips the right shape? Um, when, because like kids you you look at kids and when I, I would have students talk to me about religion and their whole thing is okay but how does that help me and it shouldn't be what helps you it should be what's glorifying to god and we're just very very there's a, there's, that's one of the things about most religions is that there's almost like a paradox there like everything is comes down to like what can this do for me Christianity is like one of the only, yeah, there is like a benefit to us, but it very much comes down to what can we do for God? But at the same time, every other religion is 
what things do I have to do to earn favor with God? Whereas with us, it's a free gift of salvation through grace. And so there's kind of a paradox there where we don't have to work for it, but at the same time, our focus is on how we can serve God, not how God can serve us. Right. And so, and and that's why I'm saying like, um, because you do have false witnesses as well. And Satan absolutely uses those. So you can have people who are extremely religious, who have no relationship with God. And they may say that they're saved, but because they don't have that relationship and they've never had that true acceptance, um, it's just pious. They're just being pious and they're patting themselves on the back so you that discernment of being able to tell who's a legitimate Christian and and those are very few and far between you know the we there will be just pockets of communities where you have those true Christians um and when you find them that's amazing that is such a glorious thing when you are in a religious community and it's very uh done in a narcissistic way versus a a God glorifying way, it's very empty. And so you start to be able to see that, but it's actually, it's really interesting when you start looking into even churches, because you can have an entire church of just fake believers. Um, I I think you can even have like believers who, who are still false prophets who can lead people astray. And like, dare I say on this podcast, I think like Bethel Church and Elevation are like two of them specifically. If you really listen to their teachings, there's a lot of stuff that's off about someone. Even though they might be very much biblically based in a lot of areas, there's other areas where they're very much off. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, I, what I have noticed, because I used to listen to Elevation Church a lot. And then until I, the more I listened to their sermons, the more I realized that that most of what their theology revolves around is what can God do for me? He can take away my anxiety. He can make me happy. He can help me with this. And it, it, none of their teaching ever comes down to deeper theological foundation. And no, nothing really comes down to how can I serve God? It all came down to what can God do for me like a vending machine? Mm-hmm. And you see a lot of that like with Bethel Church. They're very much uh, spiritualistic in the sense of like being slain in the spirit and people like convulsing on the floor and that's the spirit. You know, there's... So I think there's a lot of churches that have a lot of Christian influence, but at the same time are very much leading right, people astray. Right, right. And that's, it's just interesting when you start looking into it. And I can see why Christianity is so polarizing when you start seeing those differences. Because like a true Christian isn't somebody who's going to be narcissistic about themselves. And I, I think that's a huge place of spiritual warfare is, is nurse, at least in our extremely wealthy, privileged country, because the the U.S. honestly, even our poorest of poor, are typically better off than a lot of the poorest of poor elsewhere. Um, we're, we're just a very privileged country, and so um, narcissism is just something that we have the wonderful opportunity of having to fight against, um, because honestly, we have the time. A lot of places you're focused on survival. Um, here we, we have enough wealth, and and that's something that's even stated in the Bible. The wealthier, the more wealthy that you are, the more difficult it is for you to have that true faith. Um, and I think it's because of that that narcissism that you have within yourself that you have to fight um, because it, it it's all about how how do I benefit, and it's interesting to analyze, um, or to even see people that that's what God is, is how does God serve me? God does not serve us. We serve God. 
So it, yeah. yeah, yeah I think <laughs> the Bible doesn't talk about narcissism, but it talks about pride. And I think that's really where it comes down to. Like when you realize, like when you realize actually like the gospel message and you realize like the whole point of salvation is that we're horrible sinners and that we need, and that we need God's forgiveness and that the God who very well could have wiped humanity out decided to offer a way for us to have a relationship with them. That in itself should be very much humbling where we don't look to ourselves as trying to get what we can get out of God. And because there's, I think it's in Romans that says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And I think that's where like the narcissism comes in. And like, I I do think America is very much, America and European countries, I think are very much the most uh, susceptible to that. I think that's where Satan works a lot too, is um, when we have a country that, where everything's pretty much handed to us and we can have the privilege of getting whatever we want, having the freedom to kind of do what we want. Um, Satan works in different ways than he would a country that's impoverished. And so, and that's why I think distraction is like the, one of Satan's biggest tools. Like even I see in my life too, like the only, the times when I feel like I'm pulling away from God are the times when I'm being distracted by work or other things or hobbies. Yeah. And I, I don't think distraction's not a thing. I think, and I guess when I say narcissism, that's also a pride thing because it's, if, if you listen to somebody, right, just think about conversations that you've had. A lot of times it's like, well, I bought this. I earned this. I worked for this. I made this happen. When really everything that you've done is because God allowed you to. So it's not your accomplishment. It's God's accomplishment. It's not your money. It's God's money. And when you go to places that they just don't have that. Like they don't have wealth. They can't just go out and buy food. Like I'm, I'm going to work and I'm going to earn my food. Um, refugees in other countries, they don't have that opportunity. They're living in a tent and they just don't get meals every day. And, um, you know, I have a friend, she was on a mission trip and she said that there was a family of Muslims and they, um, they were just like sitting there waiting for this the food that she was delivering food and everything happened for this family to get the food. None of it was planned. That family should have never received the food because they weren't Christians. The Christians were served first. You serve our people first. And then we serve the next. These, this was a family of Muslims. Um, and that was just how the charity worked in the, the organization. And they, they're like, well, we prayed to your God cause we knew your God provides. And that, that is such an eye opening thing that a a Muslim family prayed to our God, the Christian God, because their God does not just you give see that you really see that as like a pattern for most people. Like if people are in like a dire life or death situation, even if they're atheists, they're gonna call out to God. Mm-hmm. And they're um and um yeah, you know, I think there's something uh about, you know, being privileged as an American I, I read a pod or heard a podcast the other day on uh, on whether or not American conservatism is would be considered an occult because we uh, we have the idea that like I, I deserve all these freedoms I deserve to get this I deserve and like and like if if uh, Christian persecution comes around well that's antithetical to our Christian conservatism idea and I do think like we have you know the responsibility to protect our freedoms and I do think that there is um, that's part of being like a good steward of like what God's given us. But at the same time, the idea that, that, uh, 
we can't have any kind of per- Christian persecution because I do. Cause, I mean, we do see patterns of, of that coming about in our country. And but when you look at countries like in uh, Afghanistan or like uh, North Korea or China, where Christianity is illegal and they're persecuted, that's where the church grows the most. You get countries like America where we're heavily privileged. People just get complacent with what they have, and it's like, well, I don't need God. I can work, and I can do this. I can get what I want. And but when you have countries that where it's actually illegal to be to be a Christian, then they're the ones that tend to be the strongest Christians, and where the church tends to grow the most, and where they learn, or where they actually learn what true Christianity actually means. It's not about God give me what I want, and God providing for them is you know providing a meal in the house. Whereas for us, God providing might be, I want a Corvette, so God's going to provide me a Corvette. So it's a, it's a very different mindset. And I, I can't remember where I had heard it, um, but there was, it was an interview that someone had with, you know, it was a Christian from one of those countries, and I can't remember remember which country it was. But the I think the interviewer said, um, it must be really hard to be a Christian in that country. And he goes, well, it must be very hard to be a Christian in America. And he said, why is that? It's like, because you guys have no reason to be a Christian. It's like, you guys have everything handed to you. You don't really like need God to be, you know, for provision and stuff. And for us, it's just the way life is. Like, that's just a part of our life because we need God. And so like we have, it kind of does come back down to that pride that we think we don't necessarily need God for our basic needs because like, well, we live in a country. And I think that's um, kind of going along that, that train of thought really. Um, when you look at it, we have like a lot of, of mental health issues, right? So when you're looking at a country that is so privileged and is very prideful and narcissistic and like, I will provide, we don't have that. Um, a, typically we don't rely on God on some of those basic needs. So when those basic needs aren't met, those God, the, the, the needs that God fills, that is likely where mental health issues come from. So like, um, like I'm in counseling, right? So one of the things that I've talked about in counseling is, um, depression. I'm depressed is what it is. Um, and a lot of that is because of my inability to give things to God. Like I, I like control, right? And so as privileged as I am, I want to control every little aspect of my life. I don't want God to control it. I want it on my time. So it's caused anger and it's caused depression because I'm not able to let go of things that honestly should be God's thing. Like that, that's a God problem, not a me problem. It's on God's time, not my time. So, you know, that that's a whole other spiritual warfare thing too, is the, the mental illness that results from our lack of relying on God. Yeah. And you know, when it comes to mental illness, What's really interesting about that, and I don't, I'm not going to try to know, like you know, minimize the struggles people go through, but you don't see mental health problems like in America. You don't see those in impoverished countries. Like I went to Thailand, where human trafficking's rampant. There's a there's a, you know poverty's rampant, and you know you have people who are girls who are sold into prostitution at age eight. And they spend most of their lives and they have like no hope, but yet they don't struggle with the mental health issues that we have. And like you go to Peru, like where they're, they have to work 15, 16 hours a day just to make pennies to live off of, but they don't have the anxiety and depression that Americans have. And so it's, it seems to be more of a first world problem when it comes to like mental health problems. 
and I think that I think that very much um, does come down to the the fact that our when our basic needs are met, we have to find something else that's going to be a problem. Yeah, and and that's probably true too. And I think demons also play a role in kind of going back to the demons. I agree. Yeah, demons play a role as well. Um, just because like when like when I was very involved with Wiccan, um, and I was relying on praising, it sounds so silly when I talk about it now, but like praising the moon goddess or, um, using the earth God to center myself. Um, when I didn't have those things, I was like completely losing it. I was anxious. I was depressed. I, um, angry, like insanely angry, like rage fits, punching holes through walls, you know? So it, and I, I think that was a lot of the demonic presence that I had brought to myself, you know, through those actions. Um, and so it like schizophrenia or sometimes depression, depression can be demonic as well. Suicidal tendencies are likely demonic. And like, it's just interesting when you start looking at dissociative personality disorders, another one, um, that is likely heavily demonic influence. So it, yeah, it's just weird how much spiritual warfare can play in mental That's illness. That's inter- interesting that you say that because, you know, the, when I struggled with depression and anger the most was when I was going through a lot of the witchcraft stuff. And like, even like the depression that I continue like to hold, like that's why I, I come back to, I think that there are demons who are kind of like assigned to like n- study us and understand us and know what our downfalls are and then know how to, how to use that against us. And I think like when you struggle with depression, you know, depression is one of those things that once you have it, it almost becomes like a friend. And like you don't like you hate depression, but at the same time, you don't want to lose it because it's like the one friend that's always there for you when things are bad. And but I think that very much does come down to a demonic influence of them knowing how to use that to as like a stronghold to kind of keep you in that box. Yeah. But I mean, I, I do think that there are a lot of mental health issues that very much are demonically influenced. And uh I don't go as far as to say that every one of them are because like my dad, he, he thinks that, you know, if you have the slightest anxiety over a problem, well, that's a demon. And I, th- and, and I think, and I think, yeah, there can be some demonic, I mean, ultimately like anything that's like bad, it does have some form of demonic influence. But as far as a demon sitting there directly attacking you with anxiety, I don't think that's always the case. If you're depressed about like a family member dying, I don't think that in itself is a demon coming after you trying to attack you in, into mental health problems. But like like you said, schizophrenia, like I'm very much convinced that that is, you know, you're seeing things that are, you know, are demonic and same with multiple personality disorder. Yeah. Um, you know, we see all kinds of um, uh, examples of possession in the Bible. And, you know, when people think of demonic possession, they think of like the whole exorcist bending backwards, puking pea soup or whatever. The, But that's not always the case. Um in fact, let me bring up here. There's a, uh, if I can find it, in Acts, Acts chapter 16, and uh, verse 16, it talks about where Paul and Silas, they were uh, on their missionary journey and said that there was a slave girl who had the spirit of divination uh, and brought and brought her owner as much gain by fortune telling. And she was like possessed by a demon, but she didn't have the whole twisting, contorting type thing. She was possessed and had the ability to tell fortunes and tell the future and stuff because of that. And like, I think people can be possessed by a demon, but not have like the stereotypical, what we think of as a demon possession. And cause we see that a lot, but you do see that also in the Bible too. Cause Mary Magdalene before 
before she turned to Christ, she had that too. She she was demon possessed, and um, I think I had given some passages about that where the Bible talks about demon possession. Even like in Matthew chapter eight, it talks about having multiple someone having multiple demons possessing them. And you talk about how when they went to a I think it was they took a boat to like a place called Gennesaret, and there was a guy who was just whacked out of his mind because of demons. And then the, and he, there, Jesus was getting ready to cast the demons out, and they said, "Don't send us out into the, just the air. Send us like at least into these pigs." And then they, and so, um, and so I think you do see like where demons will like do things like, um, like what we normally would think of as possession. But I do think that they also can possess someone as a way as just what we would see say is kind of more like I'm in a mild way where you have like special abilities or whatever, or like in the form of like multiple personality disorder, I think, um, you, your personality can change because of that entity well, that's and inside I think, of you. Um, yeah. like there's a lot of evidence. Um, there's a surprising amount of evidence actually about demon possession in Hollywood and that being very commonplace. So like Danzel Washington, right? There is an interview that he did, I forgot how long ago, um, but there was an interview he did where he he had this amazing performance in this movie, and they're like, "How did you do that?" And he's like, "Wasn't me. Somebody else took over." And well, that sounds like demon possession, right? Or um, Nicki Minaj talks about the little rapper inside of her. There's a little boy that lives inside of her that raps for her, and that's how she's able to do some of the voices. Um, and she said that in multiple interviews. So it's it, demon possession is right in our face, and it's not like creepy, pukey, gross exorcist stuff. It's performances, or it's somebody with like a dissociative personality disorder or schizophrenia or multiple personality or things like that. I think those are, are things that are, are there that we see all the time and we just and don't that's recognize That's where I think it. it comes into play where demons aren't just these impersonal, unintelligent, evil forces. They very much have a plan for how they're going to do things. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes it might be like the whole horrific, you know, version of possession, but other, other ways it may be different. And I think that's, again, I think that's just proof that demons are a lot more smarter and intelligent than what we give them credit for and how they operate. Um, and like Matthew chapter 12, it, I find this kind of interesting. It says, uh, when an unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And it comes and it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it uh, then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. And so we see that demons have, you know, they collaborate with each other, and they very much have intelligence. Where, because I think even Christians, but especially like the mainstream media, tries to play it off as these like spiritual entities, like demons and stuff. They have a very specific me- method of operation of like, this is the characteristic. This is how you recognize if it's a demon or not. And I just don't think that's the case. I think they very much can uh, change how they do things. And they can very much look like the Bible even says that uh, Satan masquerades as an angel of light and that he can very much make himself look like something good when in fact he's not. And I do think that the rest and he's I mean, he I, I think uh this kind of goes back to like before like creation or you know back before the fall that you have what's called archangels which were angels who had kind of higher positions within like 
with the rest of the angels. And like Gabriel and Michael's uh, mentioned um, in the Bible, if you read like the book of Enoch, Uriel and Raphael are two others, and Satan was actually Lucifer beforehand. I think he was one of the archangels as well. So he had power, but they it's not like he was some superior demonic force. Like he was still had like the same, like he was still the same as the rest of the demons. So if he has the ability to do something, the rest of the demons do as well because they're still the same type of spiritual being. So if Satan can masquerade himself as like an angel of light, I do think that these other demons can do the same thing and masquerade themselves as looking like something good. And I think that's why we can see something that's not good for us and think that it's good for us. Well, and that's where they use temptation, right? right. So you're you're very tempted, and, and humans are very susceptible to temptation. And those that are extremely rich are even more susceptible because once you get one thing, well, obviously more is better. So it... I think in this country that that is used quite a bit. Um, I know there's, and this is kind of the, so there, there's factual evidence of like, um, cults and demon worshiping and demon possession in Hollywood and politics, famous people, basically famous, rich individuals that are seen as typically very, very good. Um, unfortunately because of it, being viewed as almost a um it tends to be seen when people discuss it it's seen as like conspiracy theory so you're just crazy when you're like well except he was a part of that cult or he he did worship that demon i mean he stated he did um and so it's played off as just a conspiracy theory and i think that's one of the ways that um, demons and Satan are able to continue to be so in our faces with it. And yet everyone is so blind. We are so blind yeah, to what is in front of us. And I think it's because Satan of how it's Satan is like, off. is described as like the father of lies. And so he is able to very much disguise the way things are like, I, I know a lot of people don't like to talk about the idea of demons and for whatever, for various reasons, but I had one experience. So I used to work on an, on ambulance for like eight years and we got called to someone who supposedly had a seizure. So we show up, and she didn't actually have a seizure. She was just, like, in this altered state. And But, you know, they got Ouija boards everywhere. You could just definitely tell it was just an off situation. And she just had this weird blank stare, like she was staring into your soul. Like, it was just this weird stare. And she had this almost unhuman laugh that she would do. And it was just, when I give, and it was, yeah, it was just off. But, and you could just, I mean, one of those things that you could just feel in your gut, okay, this is a demon possession thing. But then when you say it to your coworker, they're like, think you're yeah. crazy. Yeah. And I think it's because it's seen as just like, when you talk about demons or whatever like that, they're like crazy Christian. One, you're a crazy Christian. Two, um, it's been so played off in the media. Like you've been saying about like. It's like a mythological, fictional. Yeah. And it. It's a very specific thing that they do. And, okay, here's the thing, though. Demons are fallen angels. So they, um, honestly, they're more intelligent than you or I. Like, I, I'm i fairly certain that, that demons, and which are fallen angels, angels have certain areas that they have more knowledge than, than we do, right? Because of the realm that they live in. Um, and our view... Um, as humans in this fallen world are very, is it's very tunnel vision. We pretty much can see what's in front of us. So I, I think there's instances where they play on that, um, 
ignorance, so to speak, to where they can outsmart and maybe have better success with the spiritual warfare in, in regard to us just being oblivious. Like, we and just don't know. And that's why, help. like, why I think I see evidence of, like, there also being angels surrounding us that's fighting on our behalf within the spiritual warfare itself. Like, all we see is, like, what we see around us. But there's also a whole other realm where there's battles going on between, you know, light and dark. And so, and um, there are a lot of accounts where people see demons like, like you and I have experienced, but people also see angels as well and experience that as well. And I think, I don't, I don't think that's something to be minimized either. I actually had an experience, I think, oh, it's been several months ago, but I was on my way to work from, uh, uh, or on my way to work. And I, it was one of those weeks where I worked 18 hours a day for the whole week. So I was just exhausted and I actually like legitimately fell asleep at the wheel on my way to Burlington. And I woke up to someone in the passenger seat reaching over and grabbing the steering wheel. And it was like a very definitive, like you can sense that there was someone actually there in the passenger seat grabbing the steering wheel. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've had a couple, you know, different times like that where it's like, you know, that there's like an angel there that's watching out and protecting you. And uh, so I, I think that is something also like we talk a lot about demons, but I think the fact that there's angels too and that we that there are encounters that people have with angels i think that's also not to yeah be minimized. well i so and similar to that um i never actually saw anybody but like my car should have flipped so i was driving from ames and it was after working a like 10 or 12 hour shift and like um i'd been up super early it was super late i was trying to get to my parents house to visit for a holiday or something i think it was like a thanksgiving um, and I fell asleep and I was like driving and I had my cruise control set and I fell asleep and my car started swerving. And that's when I woke up because I was like jerking around. I felt the car lift up. My car should have flipped. The center of gravity was off. I thought I was going to go and it didn't tip. And then my cruise control turned off. Like, and I, I was able to slow down. So I had to, I like pulled over for a minute. It was like balling and then called one of my parents to be able to be like, okay, I need to talk to somebody and make sure I don't fall asleep again. Cause I could have died. Um, but honestly with the way how the center of gravity was shifting, it shouldn't have, it, sh it shouldn't have fallen back. It should have continued going with the way how it felt. Um, so I think that was where an angel probably stepped in and let me not flip my car. Cause I probably would have died with the speed I was going and I, I was headed towards an overpass. So I would have flipped and then hit, um, one of the, the sides of, of the overpass. Um, and it would have probably crushed the car. So like death, you know, and it, it's just interesting how things like yeah, that. I've gained too. a really, um, strong fascination with like studying, like, that's why I wanted to kind of do a podcast on this subject because I've grown a, a very strong, uh, fascination with like what the spirit world is like. What do angels look like? What do demons look like? How do they interact with each other? How do they interact with us? When we die, what's the first thing that we're going to see? Do we just appear in heaven? Do we go through like this process of being escorted to heaven? That's like stuff I've been studying a lot, like within the past year. And I think when you study it, I think it's like if you start studying more into like demons and stuff, you open yourself up more for that realm. It's the same thing if you, I think if you study more on like the spiritual world, you start getting more glimpses into what that's like. And so, like, for example, um, like I said, you can't always depend on people's, like, near-death experiences. But there's one guy in particular I listened to, and there's just was something a little different about his. But he described angels as, like, 
being like having like a human form sort of but not really but also just being almost like an eminence of just light and like a bluish light and that's actually kind of what i saw when i had like when i had that experience it's like there was like someone there that had like a bluish glowish eminence about them and there's things like that where you can and like people have seen like demons and like they see like this is what they look like and so it's kind of interesting that you can start a little bit of like i don't think until like we were actually there that we'll actually be able to fully understand what the spirit realm is like but i think we can get some glimpses some people about every near-death experience i've like listened to and heard about you go through some kind of like a tunnel or something that gets you to like wherever you're either heaven or hell wherever you're gonna go and like and so you see that over and over and over again and during that time you have like what they call is like a life reveal where you have like your life flash before you of like what you and you see it in the see that in the bible where it says everything that you've done whether good or bad will be revealed to you and so you do see that see that in the bible um little, little things like that I, I just get really fascinated by seeing like what the spirit world is like around us that we can't see and then what it will be like when we die i mean like we'll and it's both very interesting and, and very scary. Just like, like I said earlier, like you get this fascination with the occult as well. And be, because of how I was with Wiccan and how interested I was in like tarot. And, um, I had started because of that, that dude that I knew that was in the church of Satan. Um, I was very interested in, in that as well. And so I, I'm concerned. I don't trust myself to be able to dive too far into it without getting sucked into yeah, it. Yeah, for, for me, it has. It's kind of almost gone the opposite direction, where the more I study on it, the more I see like where God is, where where God is at work in like the spiritual realm that we can't see, yeah. and, and like experiences like what you and I have had, and like I had another experience where. It seemed like a small thing now that I actually talk about it, but it was big for me at the time was uh, I I had hit a deer with my car, and I had, like, no money at the time. I couldn't get anything fixed, but I had a headlight out, and I got pulled over, like, four times for that headlight out. Yeah. And then so I finally like, kind of made my own headlight or whatever, but finally, like, one of the cops was like, you know, you've been pulled over, like, four, five, four or five times for this. It's like we're going to start looking out for you, and we're going to try to come after you if you don't get this thing fixed. And I had, like, no money to do it, and so it's like – it's like, okay, what do I do to get to work and stuff? But I had ordered a headlight not too long after I had, uh, after that happened, but I got it and it ended up being the one for the wrong side. So I tried fitting it in there. It just, in the way my light was curved, it just wasn't going to fit. And I tried to fit in a couple, every time I got pulled over, I'm like, okay, I'm going to see if I can get that to work, zip tie it in. It just wouldn't work. And so after the last time I was like, um, cause I had made like a headlight kind of my own like makeshift thing, but one of the light bulbs had broken out of it. So it's like, well, the, the headlight, uh, assembly that I had ordered had a, one of those that same bulb in it, so I was like, "Well, I'll just at least take it out and put it in." Well, I pulled the headlight out, and it, it ended up being the wrong one for the right side. So it ended up like completely like things like that, where you just you see that God is like does things like that. Yeah. And so when I pair that with uh, studying more of the spiritual realm, it gives me more of a fascination of what it'll be like to go to heaven, and like what it'll be like when you first see Jesus, and like. And, like, we think of, like, God as being, like, super distant. It's like, okay, well, yeah, he kind of works and communicates with us, but we won't really actually, like, he's not, he's up there in heaven looking down at us. And it's like, we won't actually be with them until we die and go to heaven or whatever. But I don't really see it being the case. Like, yeah, it does, the Bible does talk about him being, like, on the throne in heaven, but it also says that he's omnipresent and is all around us at the same time. And so when you think about the spiritual realm and how God interacts with us through the spiritual realm, that's that's what gets me real excited. 
and um, almost like looking forward to like it sounds bad, but like looking forward to death because it's like like I can't wait till that time when I actually get to like see Jesus and I actually get to go to heaven, see what things are actually like. And the more I study it, the more fascinated I am, the more well, I can't And that's kind of like, um, well, that was mentioned at church, right? We're here for a very short period of time. And, and, and really our life, like you, you don't get to start living until you're living with God in his, in his world, in his heaven. And, and at the same uh, time too, to add on to that is that, the way the way we'll live in eternity is very much determined on how we live here on earth mm-hmm. yeah so that's why like uh, you know my aunt is always like i'm probably gonna be a garbage man and i'm like if you're a garbage man i don't even know what i'll be i'll probably be sweeping out the sewers or something because i'm not any good at all and so you know like i i don't think my job in heaven is going to be super great but it's going to be paradise. But also, I don't think there's anything bad in heaven either. So it's it's just, it'll be different. Like, because I think it's in uh, Matthew 15, I think, that talks about, like, about, like, the servants with, three servants with the talents and, like, the ones that were faithful. He said, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many things. Mm-hmm. And I think that translates over to, like, where our position will be like in heaven. Like, whether or not will be a ruler of a country or whether or not we'll be, you know, over something else or what what our position will look like. But I think that's what Christians need to kind of wake up to is that we tend to spend so much effort into like, like we had talked about, like, what can I get? And like very narcissistic and very me focused. And we don't think about the fact that the way we live here on earth is going to affect how we're going to live in eternity. And that, I think that's why I enjoy studying this topic more because it ke- gives me more of an eternity mindset and keeps my mind focused on the fact that, hey, whatever I get here on earth isn't going to last. Like it's just a very short blip in the rest of eternity. And it helps you to kind of keep that perspective that um, that ultimately like we're ultimately spiritual beings. Like we don't die. We just go to another place when our body dies. And so um, if we keep that in perspective, um, we can remember that the thing about here on earth, like we can't take stuff with us. Like nothing here is going to matter like that we try to gain for ourselves. Right. And so like that was a huge factor in me going from making vaccines to going into teaching because like teaching, I'll have the opportunity, not that vaccines aren't serving, right? No, not that vaccines aren't serving people because you are making, um, something that helps with like health. And I mean, I made vaccines for pigs, so that's like food, whatever I'm helping feed people. Um, a lot of the vaccine industry, a lot of the people that are in it, it's, it's very much how much money can I make? So it's very monetary focused. Um, and, and that's just pharmaceutical, like the biopharmaceutical industry is just like well, I think the whole medical um, field all together. That's why one of the reasons I left is because the whole medical field's like that. Right. And and it's very self-serving. Um, and if if I wanted money, I would have stayed there because I would have been making a lot more money. Um but it's it's not my money. It's God's money, and it's only here for right now. It's not gonna serve me. I can't take it with me when I die. It's worthless, essentially. Money is something that humans gave worth to. God didn't give worth to money um and so like going into teaching i will get to have more direct interactions with individuals i'll have opportunity to help people where i wouldn't have been able to before 
but I'm also making less than half of what I would be making in the vaccine industry. So like the whole debate on is this smart for me to do because I don't know money wise if that's a smart financial decision. The fact that I'm not able to take money with me when I die, that that was a big factor into that because I, I may not be making money, but I'm definitely making experiences and I'm making connections and I, I, I will have time, more time to be able to serve where I want to serve. So I was I, I worked enough in Ames to where it was difficult for me to be able to serve my church or serve my community because my work schedule wouldn't allow for it. Um, I have summers off. I will be able to serve my community an entire summer. It'll be great. So like there's a lot of other things that are extremely beneficial that aren't monetary based. And I, I think people are so focused, even within the church, they're so focused on money. Um, my old church, like tithing, for example, my old church was very specific on like tithing and how you tithe and when you tithe and, and things like that. And I think tithing is important. You're taking care of your pastor, your, your, your church and your pastor and, and like the individuals that are serving you. You, that's one way you are serving them. Um, but it, I, I don't think you need to be as legalistic with it as maybe that church was, you know, and you, there was a lot of like shame, shame, shame. If say you couldn't pay as much as they thought you should be paying. So it like, because there, there would be times where I would have an expense come up and it would drain my account. Like I had a medical thing and I, I couldn't tithe that month. I didn't have the money to, I paid my rent and my account was like empty, you know? And so I could give a couple dollars, but it wasn't a tithe. So I, I think even within the church, there's just so much focus on like wealth here that we're completely missing the wealth that God gives us uh, just around us with not only wealth, being lucky but enough I think to exist. Most other areas, aspects of life. So like that's one of the many factors why I actually left my old church was because when COVID came around, they had this spirit that you need to be afraid of death. You need to be afraid of what's this going to happen and stuff. And there, there was just a spirit of like, like if Christian, if a Christian dies, like what's going to happen? Like you're going to go see Jesus face to face. Like, is that really the worst thing? And when you're in a church full of people who are 60 years or older, like, yeah, that's something that's going to happen. But the fact that they're doing everything they can, they push away the entire younger generation so that they can cater to the older people so that, well, because we're afraid they're going to die and we're afraid of death. And that was just kind of the spirit like that they had there was, was Christians need to be afraid of death and that mass and vaccines and social distancing was our only hope of solving that problem. And that was one of the big things. Like, so even like preservation of life, like I think, I do think that's important because the Bible says that we're made in God's image and that we should preserve that the body is a temple when the Holy Spirit dwells in you and that, so that you need to take care of that. But at the same time, when you're trying to cling on to life at the expense of ministry and at the expense of everything else, um, you don't see the apostles like dis disciples doing that. When you read Acts, only one disciple wasn't mar martyred for his faith. Like they didn't, like they all like, and none of them were like scared or, or well, I wouldn't say scared, but none of them were like very resistant, like, like, oh, like begging for a life or whatever. They all went to their, they all went to death, like with honor, like, like, all right, well, if I'm going to die for Christ, you know. I think it was Paul that said for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. 
And so he wasn't afraid of death because he knew what was waiting for him on the other side. And he knew like the rewards he would have because of his martyrdom. And like, I think a lot of Christians just don't have that, that uh, eternity mindset, at least in America, like where we're privileged. I think a lot of other countries, you know, there's martyrs all over the country, places where Christianity is illegal, and especially Muslim countries where people are killed for their faith. But it's not like a lot of those, a lot of the stories I've heard and read, like people don't just sit there and like Christians don't sit there beg for their faith. They know like, okay, well, if, if you, you know, decapitate me, I'm, I know where I'm going to be. And, mm-hmm. and so I think, like I said, Americans, I think are very much privileged in that. And, um, like you talked about like work and I think that has like a lot to do with it too. Like for me, I, I do think that people have like different callings. Like, I don't think like everyone's going to be a pastor. Everyone's going to be a public servant and serve And like, for me, like my talent and my passion is like in like entertainment and doing like lighting and sound and things like that. And so I do use that in my church, but using that also like in the music industry too, I think is something God can use as well. And cause I think that within this past year, like I think with studying, uh, things like this, like about eternity and stuff. Uh, I've become, a, I've gotten to where I care a lot less about what people say about my faith. And so I have no problem when, you know, when people are, because, you know, that industry, it's very anti-Christian right. for the most part, unless you're with like Christian artists. And even that you can get around some sketchy people. But uh, I just got the point. It's like, I don't care like what you say about my faith or what I believe. I'm not going to be ashamed to, to, you know, mm-hmm. to say what I believe and stuff. And, and which is actually what's been nice though is my boss has been very like accommodating to try to make sure I get back to get to church on Sundays and stuff. So it's been nice. But like whereas before it's like, okay, well if I say something, is this potentially gonna lose my job? It's like now it's like I don't really care. Like I have more of that mind more of that eternity mindset. But I don't think enough Christians in America have much of an eternity mindset. It's very much temporal, and it's like, what can I get as much as I can get here on earth? Right. And, like, and then when I, I get think, to heaven, I'll we'll sort it out. Um, that could even be where there's such a blindness to the spiritual warfare as well, is that we typically are just very focused on, uh, like, blind. We're, we're very blind, and we're very focused to the here and now, small picture, not big picture. Um and it's not that I'm perfect at seeing big picture. I'm terrible at big picture. Um, and I struggle with big picture. I'm very focused on small picture. Um, but when you focus on small picture, I think you can miss some opportunities. I think you can miss um, seeing where God has really worked within your life. And I think um, it's a way that that limits our ability to praise God fully um, because we're not letting ourselves be open to, to everything that he could do or um, the potential that we could have. And I think that's where a lot of that like narcissism, self-serving, um, like selfishness being very money. I need money all the time. And I, I, I think a lot of that is the um, just not not being aware or being, um, like you said, being afraid even. So I know in the vaccine industry, um, it was taboo to be a Christian, um, to be a loud Christian is what I should say. So, cause there were things that like, from my religious point, I didn't agree with. Um, and I found to be very unethical. Um, does that mean that legally it was unethical? No. Did I find it based on my faith to be not morally sound? Sure. Um, 
And for years, I went ahead and followed along. And then I hit that point where it's like, well, I can't do this anymore because it was wearing me down and I was it, it just wears you down. And I think and that was when I it was after I'd been baptized and like I was really um, getting into my faith and really finding my faith. So I'm I'm a fairly young, young Christian um, in that I was saved. Okay, I'm 31 and I got saved when I was 25, six years ago. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm fairly recently saved. My knowledge of the Bible is very small. Um, my knowledge of, of religion in general is probably very small, but I can tell you that God has changed my life massively in those few years and having the opportunity to be able to sit back and actually see it instead of being so in too deep to be able to allow myself to see it because I was afraid of those, what people would say or, um, being judged or whatever, I wasn't able to see those things, but now I can. So I think the more open you are to those sorts of things, the 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 closer, I guess, so I is a good a way of saying it. The closer there. you So I think kind of going back to the whole supernatural thing, like I think that's where the Holy Spirit comes in. Like you may not be fully knowledgeable in something, but the Holy Spirit kind of gives you that like supernatural knowledge into things. And uh, I think what's interesting too, like. So when we talk about like, <clears throat> like the spirit world and talk about like the supernatural and like um, what it's going to be like when you die and stuff, I think I don't think it's necessarily something that would necessarily help you grow as a Christian. I think it's just kind of more academic, but uh, like reading into the Bible of like what heaven will be like, which, which I find really interesting. Like you read in. Uh, uh, where Jesus says, like, like I'm going, like he said he's getting ready to leave and uh, through the ascension, he said he's getting ready to prepare a place for all of us. And every, and that's kind of interesting in, in itself. Like, what does it mean for Jesus to prepare a place for us in heaven? Like, and I think a part of that is like him actively preparing a place based on like what we do here on earth. I think that might have a part to do with it. Um, but yeah, I think that's kind of interesting but you read in Revelation, and it gives kind of a description of what heaven will be like. And, like, a lot of that kind of aligns up with, like, what some people will describe, like, in their near-death experiences. And, like, how you can't necessarily, like, you you can't uh, fully understand, like, in this world, like, what it's going to be like. Because there's so much within the spirit world that we can't see and that we just won't be able to understand. Like, we won't understand what it will be like to not have, like, a physical body and to be able to, like, float through walls and stuff. Like things like that, or to just, there's so much more like that we can't understand right now that we'll be able to do and things that we'll be able to see. And something I found interesting. So this was kind of more of like an academic thing, but I found it like super interesting, especially being like a sciencey person. Um, so in uh, Exodus, so I guess let's go to Revelation. So in Revelation talks about, yeah, what chapter is this? Uh, 21 it talks about uh the new jerusalem and it like gives like a description of what it'll be like and the pearly gates and like streets of gold and but everything you read about the description of heaven or angels or anything like that it always says it's like this or it's like this like it says jesus had like eyes that were like fire because it was in like a form that he just could not physically uh, compare it to anything else so, which is where, again, where some of my fascination with some of this comes from, like what things will be like and trying to imagine some of that. But um, 
let me see if I can find it here. Um, it talks about like the forming of like the of like the new Jerusalem. So like in Revelation, it says that once all the judgment and everything's done, and um, like the final judgment will be sending like the non Christians, like the non believers, their judgment where they are, are you know cast in the lake of fire along with Satan and his demons for the rest of eternity. It says that he'll destroy the rest of the earth by fire and create a new world and new Jerusalem. And so it describes the new Jerusalem. And one of the parts of it says uh, that the foundation of the city uh, will be adorned with every kind of jewel. And the first is jasper and sapphire, agate, emerald, ar- uh, onyx, carnelian, chrysolite, beryl, topaz, chrysophrase, I think, jacinth, amethyst. And it lists like these 12 uh, gems that will be like, this is like what the, like, uh, the foundation of like the whole gates of heaven or like New Jerusalem will be like. And you see like a parallel to that over in Exodus, which is almost like a prophecy to this. It talks about um, after the uh, Israelites came out of Egypt and God gave them like specific instructions, like this is how you build a tabernacle. It needs to be this so big and you need to use these specific materials. Then he goes into like the priests, like what they're supposed to wear. And they have something called an ephod, which is kind of like a breastplate they had to wear. And if, when you go into it, it they, it's the exact 12 same gemstones that you see in the, you know, in Revelation describing the, um, the gates of like the new Jerusalem. So it's kind of a prophetic thing, but it's also like to uh, prophesy to the 12 tribes of Israel. What's really interesting though, is those 12, uh, gems that are, uh, listed, uh, science has found that those are the only 12, what's called anisotropic gems. So I'll bring up a, uh, thing here, like, like like and like the names have changed like from like the new testament and old testament to now mm-hmm. but they're the, they're the same 12 gemstones well, what they found is uh if you shine what's called pure light through them it changes like their image and so uh like the closest thing that we have right now without being like manufactured like in a lab to, like pure light is like a laser because like light bounces like if you shine a flashlight on something it's not just going to light up what you're pointing at but things around it because light bounces around um, but pure light has a very straight direction and doesn't do doesn't like emanate like that. Um, like lasers, like they they do that, but they can also it's called cross polarization. So they take like a, a linear polarization lens and then they take a second one that's uh, uh, perpendicular to it. So you, you have kind of the same effect where it very focuses the light down. When you shine it through it, it changes the image of them and just looking something like this. So it's a very like rainbow esque, mm-hmm. different look to it. And what's really interesting, too, is the science community is starting to agree that there's a lot of colors in the color spectrum that we just can't see that exist. And I think that's the way heaven will be. Like, if you look at, like, what that looks like, and the plus other colors we can't see, like, to think that's, like, what the new Jerusalem really looks like. people that actually can see more colors than other individuals because of a mutation within the eye. Yeah, because it's the cones in our eyes, but they actually found, like, butterflies and other animals will have more cones than we do and have the potential to see more color than we do. And so they try to, like, I've seen pictures where they've tried to, like, this is what a butterfly would see, and it's very rainbow. So, and I, it's interesting looking at those rocks, like the rainbow colors in there, because rainbow is typically tied to, oh, this is completely off subject, but typically tied to like the, the pride community, right? But originally a rainbow was the promise God gave us that he wouldn't flood the earth again. 
So, I mean, that's very, very symbolic, right? The rainbow is very symbolic. I think the 12 tribes, that's the whole numbers thing where 12 is typically a very symbolic number and so is three um, just within the Bible. And um, yeah, that like you were saying about like the true light and everything um, that kind of makes me wonder about like, because I've not actually read Revelations, but it makes me wonder with like, um, because God probably will be true. Yeah, because yeah, Revelation says that there'll be no need for a sun because because it'll be lit by God's glory. Mm-hmm. And at the beginning of creation, like like um, in here, when I we get ready to start a series on Genesis, we're going to talk about like what that was like before uh, before the world was created. It's not like God was out in some vast, dark void that was empty, like god was still very much like eternally present you know as a trinity and you know he, he would ultimately was light too that you know, so it's not like he was like in like a dark void like i think our finite minds just can't wrap our heads around right. but uh but then it says that he created he actually created light before he created like the sun and moon and stars mm-hmm. and so um and then every time you read about like uh when god would come down like like his presence would come down, it would be like in the form of a light that was like almost blinding. Mm-hmm. And same like when Jesus was transfigured and when they people would see like like when like the description of Jesus says like his eyes were like fire, like he was like ultimate he was light that was radiating. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, so I think very much that again it comes down to like that true light, that pure light is probably like more like what God emanate like radiates that you know, that lights up the rest of all of heaven and creation, which I think would be really yeah, cool. Yeah, because, like, the light that we see right now is just a form of UV radiation from the sun, mm-hmm. right? And then our, at- you know, this goes back into what my classes are. Um, the atmosphere, because of all the different particles that are in the atmosphere, tends to scatter that light. That's why you you yeah. don't have true light is because of the very air that we breathe makes it impossible for us to have anything like that other than something that's artificially created. Not to mention our atmosphere has a certain percentage of water, a certain percent of nitrogen and stuff, which also then reflects and refracts light too. That event that spreads it out. Yep. And, and that's why we can't, we don't have any true light. And that's why there's, um, I should say pure light. Um, like you don't have true darkness either because light is refracted and reflected everywhere. And so that makes it difficult to be able to show certain things like those rocks. I mean, there, there's other things where you use lasers and things like that to be able to see. Minerals are, are typically one of them um, or a very common one to be able to see different properties because of, you know, we just don't visually we can't see that without putting in extra technology to be able to figure it out. And like, I think maybe when we die maybe the cones in our eyes like that that's part of our physical body yeah, so that yeah. might be a so limitation i don't think like like i think we will eventually have our physical bodies back because it does talk about the resurrection or the, the rapture and it talk i mean it doesn't it doesn't say rapture but it talks about the rapture and about how we'll be given new glorified bodies probably and like we see the evidence of that like when christ came back after he had resurrected he could he could actually switch between a spirit and physical form right. so he was in physical form people can see him he like Thomas doubted he, he was able to put his hands like in the wounds, Jesus's hands and stuff. Um, but he could also like walk through, walk through doors. And there's a, a also part where uh, he was with his disciples and he just disappeared and he just went. So, and so I think our, our, um, our glorified bodies that 
is talked about in Revelation, I think will be much like that, where we'll be able to like transport wherever we want to, whenever we want to, and then we'll be able to like walk through things. Like I think it'll be a lot different than we. So I don't think we'll have the physical limitations that we have now. But if you think about like the spirit realm, like you don't have atmosphere, you don't have all like the physical limitations we have now. So it's not like. Like, I think just the way we'll see things will be significantly different. There'll probably be things, like, that we'll be able to, like, smell or whatever that you, it's so much different than here. And there may even be senses that we don't even have here that we might have there. And and so, yeah, I think it'll be that's, – like, that, that's kind of what fascinates me, like, thinking of, like, what that'll be like, you know, after we die and what things will be like in heaven. And, and th- that's why, like – that's that's why I like to study this kind of stuff because it does give me much of an eternal mindset and uh, almost like not afraid of death. Like, like okay, if death when death comes, it's like, okay, well, I know where I'm going. Yeah. I'm excited. And I, I think that's a very comforting thing that honestly Christians have that non-Christians, they just don't have because there's still a level of uncertainty no matter what religion you look at. Like, even okay so wiccan for example because we were talking about that one before so you have the rule of three right and um the one i followed was very much a um where you you die and then you come back i forgot that but that was called um but you come back as something else based on what you did while you were living and that was a rule of three like a reincarnation reincarnation yeah um so yeah like with reincarnation and so like if i was a bad person three times negative of that would be me coming back as like a worm or something silly like that you know and so just like anything that you did would come back to you three times better so you wanted to be good so you could have three times the reward or the type of spells that you did you wanted those to be good spells or white spells so it would come back to you three times and you would have three times more power on your next spell so it was just weird things with like the rule of three and like and again that's using the number three so that's another interesting thing is how the number three plays into things um and so it's just interesting when you think about the level of uncertainty and how things are very focused on this physical realm with other religions. But like with Christianity, you can focus on the eternal picture or the big picture. And you do have that, you, you know, where you, when you die, where you're going to go, you may not know what it's going to be like, but you know, it will be paradise. So I, f- I feel like that's a comfort that we should all be grasping instead of being afraid of, you know, which is kind of like how things were with COVID. I think even within like the Catholics. So uh, we had one of our youth group kids who was ca- who grew up Catholic and went through all the Catholic school and everything. And after she actually accepted Christ through our uh, through our youth group, she started telling us some of the things that they're taught, like in the religion classes and stuff. And they're basically taught that if you do everything right, like you're supposed to, if you go to church mass, you go you go to confession, you do all your hail mary, you do all the stuff you're supposed to do, and do everything perfectly right you're still not guaranteed a spot in heaven. You go to purgatory, and then maybe you'll still get into heaven. And so they, even with that, there's still uncertainty. Christianity is really the only, uh, the only I guess, belief that you actually have certainty where you're going. I mean, other other religions have, you know, some, you know, the religion itself has like some kind of like, a, like okay, for sure, you're going to go here, but they don't have the peace of mind of knowing that for sure. Right. Like, uh, like Mormons, like they believe, okay, you do, all this that you're supposed to do, then you die, you become a god of your own planet, and 
however many wives you had married on earth, they'll all have eternal spirit babies or whatever. And like, and there's like Islam, they have the same thing. Like when you die and then, you know, but, uh, Christianity is the only one that gives you like that actual, like, cause the actual piece that, uh, when you die, you know where you're going. And cause the other religions, like they might say like, okay, well the Quran says I'm no, I'm going here and stuff, but they still don't have that internal peace. Like what Christians have. Yeah, and I think that's something that we don't lean into as much as we probably should. I think that's something we should really lean into with, like, the spiritual warfare, with, like, fear of disease or death. I think that certainty is something that we could use as more or less a safety blanket. And that was kind of one of my wake-up calls when, like, COVID came around, and so many Christians were just deathly scared of COVID, like, as if God wasn't in control of it and as if they have to use these external means of social distancing and stuff. as Because that was— that was another thing that kind of turned me off from like the church I was at was the message that was, it wasn't explicitly preached, but it was kind of in the message that our only hope was mass and social distancing and all the vaccines and stuff. And nothing about like the sovereignty of God was really ever mentioned through that, but it was just very much fear based. And I think a lot of Christians fell into that where it's, um, where we have to cling on to life as if there's nothing after it. Yeah. And I mean, even the church I had been going to in Ames, that was one that like very much leaned into the fear and the social distancing and all of that. And I, I feel like God preaches not to have fear. I I feel like I've read that in the Bible that God isn't fear. It's in the Bible quite a bit. Okay. So it is in the Bible. See, very little knowledge on the Bible. Um, But we, we shouldn't be leaning into our fear. If there's fear present, we should be leaning into God. That's one of those where it's a God thing, not an us thing. That's a God in control, not a me in control. And I, I just think there's a lack of knowing where that line is for us. That's why like when you read in Acts, why none of the disciples were like, you know, trying to preserve their own life when it came to going out preaching the gospel. At the same time, too, you would read um, other times uh, outside of COVID when there was like some large pandemic and everyone's fleeing. Christians were the only ones who would actually go in and take care of the sick people. And you see that over and over again throughout history is that Christians are the only ones who are like willing to sacrifice themselves to help someone else because they know that uh, they know where they're going when they die. Mm-hmm. And, and that's part of loving your neighbor and like with social distancing and like all, especially the social distancing, one, you're destroying community Two, you, they even recommended social distancing within families. So you're destroying the family unit, which is already under attack in, in our country. At least we have a very broken family unit ideal, um, or idea. And so we're, we're separating ourselves from our community. We're separating ourselves from our, our family. And then we're looking at separating like just from everybody else, you know, like not just community and family. When I say community, I mean like church, right. But like everybody else around us, Christian, part of your Christian like mindset as a Christian should be to help those around you, whether they're in your community or in a, in an, you're like the community next to you, like love your neighbor. And so that really put a, a break into that process because a lot of people leaned into that fear as opposed to defying that fear and leaning into God. And you, you, if it's your time to die, the vaccine or not, you, you will die. I was going to say, the, the Bible even says, you know, that everyone has a point that they're going to die. Right. And it says that, you know, death is ultimately like in God's control. It's like if you're going to die, you're going to die. Mm-hmm. 
And if you're going to die as a Christian, you know where you're going. So why should you, you know, fear that? And that was like, that was something else. Like, I don't mean to kind of harp on the church that I was at, but, um, but that was one other thing too, for me was, um, I had, I had brought up the suggestion that, you know, everyone was losing their jobs during COVID and everything. And so it was my suggestion. It's like, Hey, we have the means to financially, you know, help out people who, you know, can't pay their rent and all that stuff. And I have a way of setting up a program that we can do that. And every ministry we had in that church was shut down. And it's like, well, we got to love our neighbors. So we got to social distance, not talk to anyone. And we need to all wear masks and mandate that everyone stay home and stuff. And, and it's like, well, any, anything we're going to do to outreach to the people who are actually, you know, people are looking for hope in that time. And the church should be the one place that they can go to, but the church is the one place that has the most fear out of anyone. And that's what was a big thing that was kind of an eye opener for me that, yeah, that Christians should be the one that's running into the fire to help out other people. And that should be loving your neighbor, not following with whatever the government tells you you need to do. Right. And I mean, it's not, you know, it's not like don't follow the government sort of thing. Like, don't stick it to the man. Like, I'm not saying stick it to the man. I think there's a time and a place when government rules are are important, I think, for societal functioning. I think God put that in, in place for us to follow for a reason. You know, I, I think that was placed there for a reason. I also think there's discernment that needs to be done by the individual to know when those rules could be wrong. And I, I think the social distancing and, and not being open to helping those that needed it, um, I think that was wrong. Like, I had a, um, a friend, and she was in the hospital and, and she had, um, co- yeah, she got COVID and she wound up being diagnosed with leukemia, paralyzed from the waist down, stuck in the hospital. Um, but she had no way to get her truck home. And it, it was nobody in our group responded about helping her get her truck back to her house. So her husband could drive their truck. And like, I just so happened, my parents just so happened to be visiting on one of the weekends. So I was able to do that because I could drive the truck. My parents could drive my car um, or else I would have had to try to figure out how I would have had to get a taxi in order for me to be able to help in that way. So I was able to help with the truck. But it's I was lucky that my parents were there. Right. So God worked that out so I could help her. But no one else was willing to step up because COVID, you have to separate. And she was diagnosed with COVID. So maybe we don't want to touch that. And it, it just seemed wrong to me that there would be kind of a fear like that or even a tone where that could even be interpreted. Because maybe I'm misinterpreting what I experienced, but that's kind of how it came off to me. And I, I think that's very wrong. I think that's where that discernment on when to follow the rules is important and, and when to follow God is, well, and you know. The Bible talks about how the government's put as an institution, as long as that's given by God that we should follow, only if that institution also follows God. Right. But if it doesn't, then it says, you know, we need to follow God over, right. over man and over government. And I, I think there's times, too, when it's not, hundred percent spelled out like okay well they're the government wants abortion well that's obviously wrong so we're gonna stand against it mm-hmm. there's other times too like the whole covid thing about okay is loving your neighbor really shutting everything down and not talking to anyone and not going to the hospital visiting anyone or not helping people financially 
or is it you know and so i think that sometimes too we leave the holy spirit out of it and we don't we don't rely on what the holy spirit gives us conviction of what, of what we should do as well and that that would be that discernment so that god gives us that discernment and that's through um from what i'm learning that's through the holy spirit um like i said not a lot of knowledge on the holy spirit i've learned more about the holy spirit with my counseling so because my counseling is christian counseling so a lot of it is um prayer and uh seeking god and and things like that and so i that's helped me a lot in understanding the role the holy spirit plays but i i think that there tends to be a blindness to when the Holy Spirit is trying to give us discernment or when the Holy Spirit is trying to guide us. And I, I'm not very good at following it. I realize after the fact, Hey, that was wrong. And I was told it was wrong, but I, uh, oops, already did it, you know, already did the wrong thing. Um, and so like, I'm trying to get to the point that I, I interpret things the right way initially instead of after, and then having to clean up the mess. Um, or, you know, kind of like, jo- is it, was it Jonah that was in the whale? Kind of like Jonah and the whale instead of taking the scenic route, you know, I, I want to. And, and I think that's a classic example of what we were talking about earlier, where in America, we're afraid to fail. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, Jonah failed, but he still didn't get the lesson, but eventually he did. But, um, but yeah, I mean, you, you can't like, that's just a part of being a human too. Like we're going to fail. And if we try to set up systems, so there's absolutely no failure. There's also no learning. Right. And, uh, I think there's, there's a verse actually, I just pulled up that I think really is good to, um, you know, about this whole thing about having, um, uh, kind of an eternal mindset. It's, uh, in second Corinthians see, chapter five, it says, for we know that the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed. Talking about the body, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be clothed, that we be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. And like. I really, I really like that verse because that kind of brings together like the whole eternal mindset of the fact that what what we go through right now in life like is only temporal and like and ultimately like we're gonna have spiritual bodies we're gonna you know be in the presence of God and not have like all the problems that we're having now and um, when we try to uh, not not that we shouldn't fi- try to address a lot of the problems that go on and I think that's important too but. When we, when we start treating a lot of those problems, like those are the end-all, be-all. If we don't do this, you know, that's the end of every, you know, I don't think that's right either because the Bible does say that, that yeah, we're going to have problems. We're going to have sickness. We're going to have everything in these bodies. But if one day we're not going to have these bodies and we're going to have a body that's glorified that isn't going to go through those things. Right. And I, that's like with COVID, for example, that that's where kind of that fear I thought was a little unfounded. I think there comes a time and a place like I over Christmas this last year, I was diagnosed with um, influenza A and I'm not going to lie. That's the worst flu I have ever experienced in my life. It was awful. And I pretty much just kind of shut myself in my room because I wanted no one to go through what I was going through. And it was very contagious. And I knew that because I got it from my students. 
and um, like a huge chunk of the school had influenza A and I was out for a week and a lot of students were out for two weeks, you know, and so like we had almost half our teachers out sick with it and so it was spreading a lot so I wanted nobody to get it because like I don't want to I like I want to spread the love but not that kind of love you know and so um I kind of shut myself away and tried to like not breathe on anybody and I wore a mask when I went back to work because I was still kind of like snotty and like gross I could my fever broke because I had a stupid high fever, but my fever broke and I was fever free. Um, but I was still talking. I still had a lot of mucus gunk. I was just gross. Um, and I didn't want more students to get it. I didn't want to um, spread it to any other teachers. And so I think that's a point where it's like, I'm sick and I know this spreads quickly and I know it's highly virulent. So I'm going to act in the right way to care. Did I isolate myself completely from students teachers or my family no but I limited contact to a point to where I knew it was going to minimize chances of them getting infected I I think my brother got it from me just because we had been talking and I coughed or something and so um you know I still spread it but I tried to minimize as much as possible so not everybody would get it from me you know and I think with COVID, it's that that's a responsibility thing, right? And that's that discernment of when do I isolate, when don't I isolate, and when is that caring, and when is it not? And so you can, like with COVID, right? That's typically, I, I don't know what the new rules are, but like with a coronavirus, that's typically a week to two weeks that you're shedding virus particles. And so um, when you think about it, you have two weeks max where you might not be around anybody or you might be taking certain precautions, like don't hack in someone's face, right? You hack into your arm. Sorry, I turned away from the mic. But you hack into your arm versus into somebody's face or you, um, you know, wash your hands. Make sure you wash your hands. Don't cough in your hands and then touch other people. You, I think there's certain things you can do to minimize spread of disease without total and complete isolation unless it's required like for example rabies or ebola those are high mortality rates so and highly virulent high mortality rate obviously you want to quarantine um SARS-CoV-2 didn't have a mortality rate of that it had a mortality rate um like a bad flu season a really rough flu season which we had not seen a flu season or a cold season like that since um, I, oh shoot, I want to say it was like the 60s, 50s or 60s was the last time we had a, a flu with a virulent or a mortality rate similar to SARS-CoV-2. And so when you look at things like that, like even just looking at the data that's presented, you can see whether or not the act is logical. And then, and I think that's that discernment that God and the Holy Spirit gives us to be able to make those calls on what is safe and what isn't and how am I serving and am I not serving and that sort of thing. And so churches that just kind of dove into the, let's be afraid, um, because being afraid is serving our community. I, I find that very, um, preemptively diving into the fear. Yeah. I find that very antithetical to really what the Bible teaches. And that, and let's kind of 
go to that word safe. Like, does the Bible teach that Christianity is going to be safe? Like, that us following God is going to be safe? And so, so there is, there's a really good, um, so I like C.S. Lewis. Like I mentioned, like screw tape layers. I'm reading the great divorce right now. I've read quite a few of his books, but something that I really like, and I think someone else actually pointed this out, um, a quote out of, uh, Chronicles of Narnia is talking about Aslan the lion. And they ask, uh, is he safe? And the beaver goes, is he safe? He's not safe, but he's good. And that's, I think that's the way a lot of like, um, Christianity is, it's not, you know, that's talking about God, you know, like, like God is not safe in the way that we see it. Like he can wipe out all of humanity with just that breath. And, um, but he's good and he's just, and I think it's the same way with us in, you know, walking the Christian life. It's not safe, you know, going, you know, especially like you go to places like China and North Korea, like if it's not safe to go out and say, I'm a Christian and hand someone a Bible, um, and, you know, even in America, it's getting to be not safe to, you know, voice your opinions. Like, even things like this podcast will probably eventually be canceled and shut down because it's got Christian content to it. And, uh, and so it's not safe to be a Christian a lot of the times. But the Bible also teaches that, you know, staying faithful to God and not, you know, not buckling under the fear of, you know, of safety um, ultimately gives you a greater reward. Right. And I, that, that's also like, um, cause you had spoken about the armor of God, right? Or is that what it was called? Yeah. Armor of God. And so it, God will keep his people safe, but it's not safe in the way that we think safe, right? You, the Bible talks about you will be persecuted and you, there will be pain. There is going to be pain. There is going to be death. There's going to be persecution. It is a very difficult road. The road to Christianity is an extremely difficult one. And with God's armor, like he, he prepares you for it. He will always help you bear that weight. That's not something that like you're, you're never alone. So as dangerous or uncomfortable as the Christian journey is, God is there with you through it. And I think that's something that is typically not thought about because like you, you said earlier, like God is this over seeing like deity that doesn't really touch us. And I, I, he is very involved with our individual lives, like extremely, he, he left the 99 to save the one. Like that is a very accurate description of how God is because of uh, he's just so involved in every single one of our lives, like intimately involved in every single one of our lives. And that's very much not this overseeing deity that touches nothing. I mean, he's not just watching the world fall apart. He is in every corner, every shadow, every fiber of the planet. He's there. And I think he will help us on that difficult journey. We just have to let him, we have to ask him and we have to give him the opportunity to, um, or we have to not really give him the opportunity, but like give him, um, ourselves to, I don't know how to say that basically like allow him to do that because that's our free will to deny him or to accept. And I think that there's just a lack of that accepting God's guidance or help. 
Yeah, so a verse that comes to mind um, that I just brought up is Matthew 8, 28. It says, Do not fear those that kill the body, uh, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear, fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. And another one says, uh, Do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you, uh, warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has the authority to cast you into hell. That's in Luke. And so, yeah, I think when we start fearing man and we start fearing, you know, circumstances over God, I think that's very unbiblical. Um, but like you'd mentioned, like how God is very much involved in our lives. Like, like I had mentioned, like with the headlights, something like that that seems looking back is kind of small and stupid. But the things that are important to us, like God is very much involved and takes interest in things that, that we find that are important to us and that we, you know, that, uh, that we find important in our own lives. Right. And I mean, it, it can be things that are super small, like your headlight or like in my life, um, you know, I had this, this thing and it was just messing with like, there was a situation I didn't handle it well. Um, and I, it, it was destroying my emotional well-being like I was crying every day and I I cried every day for like shoot almost two months because I wasn't I couldn't handle it it was just something that I could not carry and all I had to do was just pray for God to take it and I didn't realize I could I didn't even think that I could do that and it wasn't until my counseling session that it's like well just just pray about it and so then it's like okay well now, now I know that's something I can do. So there's these little things that like seem so, I, I say little, like sometimes they're very big things, but you, if you pray and you ask God, please take this thing or please help me carry this thing. I can't do this. I need you. He will gladly step in and do that. You just have to cry out to him for that to like happen you know yeah i think something else to also remember that i think is mistaught in a lot of churches um especially like modern um kind of like some of the modern churches is that if there's something that you want and you pray for that you'll get it and i think um it kind of comes back down to he's not safe but he's good and you know i think when we pray for okay i'm i'm sick or i have this going on um, if I pray, well, God loves me and God cares about this and he cares about what I care about. So he's going to heal me, but he doesn't always heal you. Like what happens when he doesn't heal you and you go the rest of your life, not having that. Like you saw it with Paul, he had, it says he had a thorn in his side. It doesn't say what it was, but he asked like three times for God to take it from him, like begging God to take it from him. And God said, no, I'm not going to take it from you. And so God ultimately has a bigger plan for whatever is in your life. And sometimes he does heal people of things and, you know, take things from people that, are you know causing the pain but sometimes he doesn't and he ultimately has a plan for that so i think when we when people teach the you know kind of the prosperity gospel like okay well if you want it if you want this to change your life just pray and god will do it it's like not always that's why in the bible it says ain't because you know and i think uh last time i had victor on him and i had talked about this that if um that when you that there's verses that say okay if you just ask in jesus name you'll get it but they don't consider the fact when they, I think a lot of churches use that as like a prosperity gospel. It's like, okay, kind of a name it and claim it. Okay, well, I want to be healed. I'll pray it. God will do it. Um, but a part of that also is being aligned with God. And when you're aligned and you're abiding with God, at the same time, 
um, your will starts in line with his will. And you may not, I mean, you may want something to change in your life, but if God doesn't, then you're accepting the, the fact that God doesn't change that in your life because you know that God's ultimately got a bigger will. And uh, God's plan and God's will starts to take precedence over what you want. And so then that's when, like the like the uh, example with Paul, like, he uh, he. I think after that, thir- after uh, God said no, I'm not taking that from you. I think he understood that that's something that God wants to use to further what God's plan was for his life. Um, but when we think that okay, well, just because I want this change in my life doesn't necessarily mean that God's going to do it. Mm-hmm. No, and th- that's very true too. I so like I guess when I was talking about my thing, like um, I wasn't meaning that like God right, will just right, step yeah. in yeah. and like fix the like no it's it's going to be hard it's going to be heavy and it's not like my thing's not fixed and that's still something that like is is going to be with me for probably the rest of my life it was just i i made a dumb decision right and that that messed me up a little um but i'm not alone in dealing with it either you know that's where um like with this thing that's Maybe the use of it is so I start leaning on God more. You know, I I really, I don't know for sure yet, but it's something where I have to lean on God. If I don't lean on God and I try to handle it myself, I fall apart. So if I lean on God, I can go through my life. And it it's not a good thing. It's not an easy thing. It's a very heavy thing. And it, it's a bit of a bummer. Um, but... I still have that security of being able to lean on God. And I think that's not utilized as much as it should be. And so that's kind of what I was, that's what I was meaning. I just probably didn't say it in the best way, but, um, like you never have to bear anything alone. And there was, um, oh, was it, was it Job that lost everything? Okay. So see, I, I know little bits and pieces of the Bible, um, but like Job, for example, he's tends to be seen as a very, very patient man, right? Very patient, very God loving. Here's the thing though. When you read it, I feel like he whined quite a bit and he cried out to God. He questioned God a lot. Mm. He did. And so he was a very, very good example of where you will have struggle it is not an easy thing, but ultimately he left his faith up to God and he leaned on God when he needed to. And at the same time, too, you see in Job that um, when you start going to God and ask and questioning God, God allows it, but God might also put you in your place. You, you have two whole chapters of God putting Job in his place saying, where were you when I created everything? Right, exactly. And so, but that was a learning thing for Job. That was done so Job could understand. And And I think in that case, like we can read that. And so we can understand it. Like, and that was probably over a course. And I can't remember, I'd have to look at it again, but I think it was over the course of a few years that all that happened. So Joe, Joe never understood it. And at the end he might have, but he might not have. And you might, people may not understand the reason why they're going through things and may never understand. Like you might later on in life be able to look back and say, okay, I understand why I went through what I went through, but you may never until you get, you know, until you get to heaven and understand the plan after that. But, um, but I think that's where I think it's uh, in Hebrews 11 says faith is a substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen. And that's where faith comes in. We can't see the big picture. We can't see what God's doing or his, or his plan. We just have the faith that he is ultimately good and that he's doing what is ultimately best. And that's where I think also Romans eight twenty eight is a lot of times taken out of context where it says uh, uh, all things work together for good to them that love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And I think people take that out of context thinking 
thinking, well, God's going to do things in, by my standard of good, what I, what I want. But ultimately, like things in your life that may not look good, he uses for good. It says he works everything together for good. Not that every, not that all those things are going to necessarily be good, but he'll use them to be good. And so um, we may not always see what God's plan is, but we can have the faith that ultimately God is in control and that God's going to, you know, that he ultimately has a plan that we can't see. And there's, and I think people are going to hear this a lot on this podcast is because it's something that I've kind of like lit, um, I try to always keep at the front of my mind is that we try to make complete sense of an incomplete picture. Like we try, we try to look at the very limited um, things that we see and try to make complete sense out of what God's trying to do. And like we had mentioned, like there's so much going on in the spiritual realm and in heaven that we just will never understand until we get there. And even then we may not even fully understand. Um, And for us to try to think that we could have God figured out and his plan figured out, I think is, you know, pretty prideful to, well, yeah, absolutely. I would agree. That's very prideful for us to think that we would be able to understand God's picture is insane. And I think we need to be more accepting of our limited view. I mean, human humans just in general are very tunnel visioned on the small picture. We only see what we can. And that that's just a very small portion of what's there. But it like you said, when we die and we are finally in heaven and we have the opportunity, if given, I, I'm not sure if the Bible specifies on that or not, whether whether or not we will know the purpose of everything. We may not. It, it says that we'll be shown like our okay. works. Mm-hmm. Um, and even that, like that's a whole nother topic. Like it says that we'll be it. The So, yeah. So that's a whole nother topic we get into later because I, I could really go down a rabbit trail. We're already like at like two and a half hours. So I'm that that's a rabbit trail that could become an entire podcast episode. Yeah. But. <laughs> but like I now I got lost. Um but like I was saying, like that it, even if we never know, like even within our eternity, if we never know why certain things happen, there was a reason or a purpose for it. I mean even Jonah, when he was like nah, dude, I'm not going to do that. Sorry, God. And he got eaten by the fish and then went on this fun little scenic route that was awful. Um, he still did what he was supposed to do. He just didn't want to do it. And, you know, he, he was saved, still mad at God even and, when God didn't do what he wanted him to do. And he threw a little hissy fit. There was a whole chunk where he was throwing a little hissy fit. And, like, even though he did that, there was still something, like, like, one, he didn't actually make a mistake because God still put him on the path he was supposed to be on. And two, that little scenic route he went was a whole learning thing for everybody else. It's put in the Bible, obviously, because it lets us learn that even if we don't do exactly what we're supposed to do when we do it and we choose to be like, nah, I'm I'm not doing that right now. God, sorry. If he wants us to do something, he will find a way to make us do it. And he'll just put us on the fun little scenic route which will probably be very difficult, but um, would still have the end result that he wants. So everything that we do is still God's plan. And so there's not, um, there's not a way to like skip out or mess up God's plan. And I, I think knowing that one should be a comfort and two should help us rely on God more and maybe be more, try to listen and be more aware 
of what God's trying to tell us. And I think that's a part of the fact that we don't understand God's sovereignty because God's got a will that will happen um, regardless. But I think he does give us the choice of whether or not we're going to be a part of that. But at the same time, he already knows whether or not we're going to accept. So it's kind of, it's, it's kind of beyond for us to understand, but there is a verse that's interesting. And I think it's a whole other topic that we probably shouldn't even get into this episode, but in uh, John chapter 15, that's where it talks about like abiding with Christ. And it talks about like, the vine and the branches. And one of the things it says, and there's another couple of verses, I think that, that uh, reference something similar to this. Um, I just don't remember where they're at, but it says, uh, Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Um, and I do think it's possible that if we don't, if we are complete, like completely rebellious to, you know, submitting to God's plan, then I think there is a time when God's, then God's like, all right, I'm going to give you over to doing what you want to do and maybe even shorten our life because of that. Because if he has a Christian here on earth who has a specific purpose, but that person's completely rebellious and has no intention of ever turning back to God, and God knows it too that He'll never. Turn, then I think there is a possibility that God takes them early. Um, I'm not. I'm not going to set that in stone like that's absolute truth. That's just kind of my take on that. But, um, but I think ultimately God. Ultimately, God knows what you know if we're going to accept His will or not. Um, but the whole thing is like a learning process as well because. Um, there's going to be, there's gonna be uh, periods in our life and like seasons in our life where we may not align ourselves with God and there's other times where we will. And so, but ultimately that comes down to uh, God's sovereignty that ultimately like he works out his will and uh, he just invites us to be a part of it. Yeah. And I, I would agree that that's kind of our um, blessing maybe is a good word for it. Um, to, I'm, I'm trying to think of a better word than blessing, but I can't come up with one. I think that's like one of our blessings is that we get to be a part of his will. Um, even if it's not easy, cause it's not like the journey earth will never be easy because it's a broken planet. Right. And a Christian is working to glorify God's perfection. And I think because there's so many, like we were talking about so much spiritual warfare, so much, um, war just within ourselves and within the spiritual realm, war is bloody, war is messy. And I think that's just something that, that we have the, the fun of, um, getting to go through and be a player in, even though we're not alone with God. So as long as we still have God, we're at least not alone, but it doesn't mean that it's easy. It just means that it's good and it's his will. And that's a, a good, a, a glo- well, that's quoting Loki, but I could say it's our glorious purpose, you know, but like, that's just something that we get to have the opportunity or the blessing to do. Yeah. And what's cool too, is when you look at the Trinity and you look at like, how God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit come together and like how in salvation and how that relationship is him inviting us into the Trinity, which is a whole other topic that we're going to get into when we get into Genesis. So, but I think that's a good place to end. We're like right at like a two hours, 40 minutes. Wow. That oh, went okay. by quick. So, <laughs> but no, it was a good conversation. Thanks for coming on. It was, 
Yeah, it's I mean, good. Little rabbit trails here yeah. and there, but it was well, yeah, good. This, like, so this is a topic that I could go on for hours because just talking about the supernatural and all that, I can just yeah. I could go on for hours on all of that. So, but as we finish up, is there anything that you want to leave the listeners with? Um, just lean on God. Uh, that that's a big one, and I think that's one that that I I know I struggle with it, and from my understanding, a lot of people struggle with it. We try to handle everything by ourselves and we can't that's not our purpose our purpose is to glorify god and then lean on him when we need to and so i think glorifying god leaning on him and and doing your best to be aware of where the holy spirit's trying to point you um just to help maybe avoid those scenic routes as much as you can but yeah just lean on god it's a good way to end it so, oh, and I almost forgot. So, guys, uh, after this episode, I believe we're going to. Uh, I got another special guest that's going to come on. We're going to be starting to go through a series in Genesis, and so it's going to be formatted a little differently. It won't be quite as free flowing as some of these other episodes have been, but uh, we're going to go deeper into like Genesis, the authenticity of the Bible, talk about scientific evidences for it, um, refuting the theories of evolution, things like that. So we're going to go through like the whole book of Genesis. So it's going to be a really good series. But just letting you guys know that it's going to be is going to be a little different than what we've been doing. So um, but uh, we will start that in the next week. And I think you guys are going to enjoy it. So, guys, thanks for listening. And my name's Chris. This is Kara. And that's our take. Bye.